The book of Revelation prophesies in the end times that people will be offered a mark of the beast in exchange for their soul. This mark is going to give them worldly comforts of being able to buy and sell and participate in society, and many people will be deceived. But is this mark, which many have speculated about, a physical reality, or is it a spiritual one? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. I'm always happy to be with you. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so on my website because you never know with these platforms. I like to say that, especially in the topic of the end times, which we are studying. There's a lot of controversial things. And of course, when you start talking about controversial things, then you just never know. So ultimately, stay tuned through my website if all this stuff is interesting to you. That's the best way to stay in touch. I probably reach out to people maybe once or twice per week, uh, depending on what kind of content I'm doing. But either way, that's the safest. And either way, I'm happy to be with you today, happy to share all this very important information because ultimately I don't feel a lot of people are talking about these things. This is exactly what motivated me to compose this end time series. Now, this end time series, if you're just tuning in, if you're just joining, you have some catching up to do. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of episodes that we have done to get to this point, which is a very popular point. It's the mark of the beast. A lot of people have talked about this is probably one of the most, if not the most popular topics in the end times. And there's been so many opinions, each with convincing arguments, convincing evidence, so to speak. So this is a very popular topic. And the reason I chose to put this towards the end of my series is because of context. As you may know, Anybody can use the Bible for practically anything. The devil uses the Bible to tempt Jesus in the desert. And so ultimately, if that's something that Scripture warns us about and gives us examples about, then we have to be careful with context. We have to be careful with how we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so that's why I chose to put this topic, the mark of the beast, and of course the Antichrist, if you tuned in last week, that also was again something that I put towards the end of this series for a reason. These are the you know probably the most popular topics. The Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, and what's the mark of the beast? Those two topics I put at the end of the series. And of course, we still have some episodes, some very important episodes to cover, like the trumpets and, and the various time prophecies. We'll get back into those from Daniel and Revelation. But we're towards the end. And the reason for that is because I had to provide context. We had to look very carefully at the book of Daniel, starting with the 70 weeks prophecy and realizing that all of the time prophecies in Daniel, which are connected to the 70 weeks, are connected because they all talk about very long periods of time. The 70 weeks prophecy is fulfilled in history over a course of 490 years. And if that's the case, then the rest of the time prophecies in Daniel, because they're all related, they're all part of the same 2300 year prophecy, those prophecies use the day to year principle not literal days. And of course, Revelation builds off of Daniel, and we see the same time prophecies of 1260 days. Of course, those days mean years. So why? what am I getting at with all of this? Because again, I'm trying to do some review, but I, I want to get into it today because we have a lot to talk about. But I am trying to do some review for people who uh, may have just tuned in. This is obviously a, a very popular topic, so it might get some more views. But either way, the point is this. 
All these things needed to be context so that we could rightly understand who the true Antichrist power on the earth is. We could understand who Mystery Babylon is. And of course, all that is unlocked with Daniel's 70 weeks, because if Daniel fulfills historically, then all these time prophecies fulfill historically, and there's a whole different reality that you look at. Our eyes are not on Israel, 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 and dispensationalism, and all these things that we have talked about for the last 20 plus episodes. Great detail, mind you. So if, if you have bought into these things to whatever degree, whether you believe in a rapture, look, I would love for there to be a rapture, but there isn't. And ultimately the rapture is not guided by scripture. It is something relatively new in thinking and it's been adapted into dispensationalism. And if you remember again, history, just very brief history, in the 1500s, all the reformers, the people who got back to the Bible, who wanted to get back to the truth of Christ, they all saw who the real Antichrist power on the earth is. And that power is not a man. Of course, it's represented by a man, but it's a system. It's the papacy. It's the Catholic system that has put itself between man and God, changed the times and laws, perverted the scriptures and the gospel with its teachings and done all kinds of things. It bloodshed, mother of abominations. We'd looked at all of these things. So I highly encourage you to go to the past because all of that is going to provide context for what we're talking about today. Because again, today is extremely popular. And just because it's popular, in fact, if anything, the reason I should say, because it's popular, it's even more suspect that there will be false information, right? If something's popular and everybody's talking about it, Chances are there's going to be a lot of misinformation. The things I've talked about in the series are not my ideas, but they also are not being talked about by a lot of people. Not today. Protestants 500 years ago was, were talking about these things. But over the last couple hundred years, again, if you know your history, if you know about the Counter-Reformation and all the things we've been talking about in the last few episodes, then it makes no surprise to you that most people are deceived when it comes to the end times today in the world that we live in. So this is all very important because throughout history, people have thought that the mark of the beast is something physical. It's, oh, it's barcodes. It's the jib jabs. It's the palm scanners. It's a microchip under your skin. Maybe it's even Elon Musk's Neuralink. You know, it's going to be hooking you up to the beast or whatever the beast is, right? So there's been a lot of different theories, blockchain even, right? But the question is this, is the mark something physical or is it something spiritual? Are these things the mark or are they just ways that the mark, which is spiritual in nature, will be enforced? Of course, the Bible tells us that you won't be able to buy or sell. So there are physical consequences. And of course, that means those physical consequences are being enforced or will be enforced. And if we look around today, this is probably one of the I would say there's certainly a lot of signs, but one of the greatest signs that we are nearing the end is that we're approaching a system through technology, through different things like digital IDs, social credit systems, where enforcing such a thing that the Bible speaks about is indeed possible. It will be possible very soon because of blockchain, because of AI, because of the internet, because of all these different things. Never in the history of mankind has there been an ability for an authority to prescribe to you money that expires, right? Like central bank digital currencies. 
and determine how you use that money and have complete oversight and basically kick you out of society with the push of a button. This is pretty profound. And again, it testifies to the fact that the Bible is true. So today my goal is to show you that the mark is not physical. It's spiritual in nature. And of course, it will be enforced with physical things like probably all the things I mentioned. Palm scanners, jib jabs, barcodes, who knows, microchips, Neuralink. It's all on the table. But again, the devil's job has always been to distract you by putting your attention on the physical world so that you are not paying attention to the source, which is the spiritual, behind those physical things. We've talked about this exact point over and over and over again, especially as it relates to dispensationalism, because most people today are deceived by dispensationalism. They read everything in the Bible very literally and fleshly, They believe that the third temple that the Jews are building in Jerusalem is a good thing. It's a sign of Bible prophecy unfolding. But again, the temple is a spiritual reality. Christ already built the third temple. It's the church. It's a a spiritual reality that we have. The body of Christ is the temple, is the kingdom, it's the Lord's table, it's the church. All these words that the New Testament uses, they're all interchangeable with one another to denote a spiritual reality, a spiritual kingdom. And so, again, but, but if you were the Antichrist, if you were the power that was pulling the strings and people had identified you as the beast, as the system that is oppressing the believers in the world and that will one day demand worship, as it has throughout history, if you were that beast, what would you do, right? Think about it. Just think about it very simply. What would you do? Would you admit it? Or would you try to spin the Bible in such a way that it pointed away from you into distractions. Oh, no, 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 it's not 1260 years. God forbid you look at history who is fulfilling this prophecy. It's it's 1260 literal days. It's going to be this charming guy that st- steps into a, a physical temple in Jerusalem, and he's the Antichrist. You don't have to worry about us. We're, we're just, we're here. We're just hanging out. Do you see what's going on? I really hope you do, and I hope that you will go back and watch the previous episodes if you are new today and you've clicked on this for the Mark of the Beast and you want to know more about it. Certainly, I will do my best to give you some of the context of these previous episodes, but ultimately, there's a lot to learn. I should say more more so, there's a lot to unlearn because the world has been deceived by dispensationalism, and dispensationalism has its roots in the Counter-Reformation which was started by the true Antichrist power on the earth. So how do we know what the mark is? This is the the typical, or I should say the, the most important question to ask, which is, where does the mark come from? Well, it comes from the beast. It's the mark of the beast. So in order to find out what the mark of the beast is, we have to know who the beast is. And that's why, like I said, I put this episode towards the very end. Because we've had to provide ample evidence and context of who the beast is, Mystery Babylon. Of course, those are all different stages of the beast that John saw, but it's all the same same thing. And in the Bible, beasts are kingdoms and systems. They're political powers. They're not people, okay? Beasts are always systems and kingdoms and powers. It's the same in Daniel, and it's the same in Revelation. They're beasts. Now, the papacy has a personal representative, which Daniel, through the little horn, saw that this power that came out of Rome, 
Remember, Rome is the fourth beast that he saw, which gave birth to this little horn who plucked up three kings before it. And we saw that in history with the Heruli, the Visigoths, and the Ostrogoths. Those are the three little nation states, basically, that were removed before the papacy assumed power in 538 AD. And it rules for 1260 years until 1798. When Napoleon arrested, or I should say Napoleon's general, Berthier, arrested the Pope and declared the papacy at an end. The mortal wound, it seemed to have a mortal wound. So all these things are fulfilled in history. So here's the thing. I mean, ultimately, if these things are talking about beasts and political powers and kingdoms, even though they have a personal quality to them, because Daniel saw the little horn with eyes like a man, it had characteristics of a person. The beast has a personal representative, of course. But which beast is it? Right? And the beast we're talking about is the first beast from the sea that John sees. That beast from the sea rules for 1260 years. That timestamp of 1260 years exactly matches. And we looked at this again, all this stuff I'm just trying to review here so we can get into it, but it is important. That timestamp matches it the first beast that John saw, to the little horn power that Daniel saw. Daniel saw the big picture of history. Of course, he was, you know, in 500 BC, Second Temple era. And so, you know, imagine trying to imagine the papacy a thousand years before it even began. And they had no concept for such a thing. So he saw the greater picture of things. He saw this power coming out of Rome. And and he saw, you know, basically... The, the end until the very end when Christ would return and destroy this Babylonian system. And then John picks it up with new revelation and gives it contour by seeing the first beast come up, which again matches the little horn. But then that beast gets a wound. Then there's a second beast that comes up. We looked at that and how basically this second beast works these false signs and wonders, gets people to really honor the first beast by building an image of the beast, which is a representation. Now, what was the beast? What was the first beast? It was a Christian nationalist system, union of church and state. So the second beast, which is also another system, and we looked at that and how it fulfills in the United States. The United States is not Mystery Babylon. Remember, Mystery Babylon sits on seven hills. There's no other place in the world that qualifies for that other than Rome. Rome is the city of seven hills. And of course, Mystery Babylon is also called that great city. And of course, that's the Vatican. That's the heart of the papacy, where the king and, of course, the personal representative of the little horn lives. But the, the first beast that John saw gets a wound. The second beast comes up, helps to basically create this image, which is a representation. It's a new government that honors this first government. What does that mean? That means that there's going to be a Christian nationalist system that starts in the United States and propagates out through the world. And the last thing that John sees is the woman riding the beast, Mystery Babylon. A woman is the church, and of course, in this case, it's an apostate church because it's a harlot. And she's riding a beast, and that beast that she's riding is very reminiscent of the first beast. So it's a union of church and state. This is all very consistent. And again, we looked at this hours and hours with proof and documentation, these things are happening today. We are moving towards a one-world system, a one-world religion, and it's not the big bad communist deep state. 
It is, rather, a light world order, a Christian nationalist system that honors the first beast that ruled the earth for 1,300 years. Do you really think that a power that ruled with such an iron fist is going anywhere? The answer is no. And again, if you know your history, you know that history repeats itself. So this is the direction we're heading, and this is the beast that we're talking about. If you believe the beast is a person, and he's some person that's going to rule for three and a half years during some tribulation, that maybe you're not even going to be here. Again, the rapture is, it's nonsense. I would love to believe in a rapture. I would love that it would be true. This world is a cursed world, but it's not true. We are told to endure, and we are told to strengthen ourselves. And so ultimately, this whole teaching of a future three and a half year period of the Antichrist, and he's the beast, and people are trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist and figure out, okay, if it's Elon Musk and he's the beast, then it must be Neuralink. Or if it's Trump and he's the beast, well, then, you know, it must be the jib-jab or whatever. You know, all these things are just distractions because, again, you're using your fleshly, worldly eyes to interpret rather than spiritual eyes to see spiritual things. And the Bible is always talking about spiritual things, especially in times events. They're talking about greater spiritual realities. So the question is this, what beast, i.e. system, has already boasted about its mark of authority? We have that on record. And the answer is the Catholic Church. So we're going to look at that today. Of course, there's a couple options for the mark of the beast. I don't really know. I'll, I'll give you this as a preface. I am not exactly sure how it's all going to play out. I think there is a great amount of evidence if we look at history, as to what some possible candidates are. And we've also looked at the previous episodes, like the image of the beast, the counterfeit spirit in the church, how it's unifying all the world's religions. We looked at all these things. And so the future is very clear. It's the woman riding the beast. The kings of the earth will give their power to this Christian nationalist system. The papacy is going to be back in its glory as it had, much more briefly, thank God. And it'll demand worship in some way, allegiance, obedience. And for that obedience, you will get a treat, you'll get a reward, you'll be able to buy and sell. And if you refuse, then you will be persecuted and ostracized. How that's going to play out, I don't know. I don't think anybody really does. We have to stay on guard and have discernment. But if you don't know what the beast is, and your eyes are on Israel and, and you know Donald Trump and Elon Musk or whoever else, I mean, every I've heard... 20 different antichrists from 20 different people who believe in dispensationalism. So ultimately, you'll be lost. You're not going to be ready for it when it does come. Because you'll think, like the rest of the world, that it's a good thing. The world right now is being pushed. We talked about this in the Dark to Light episode a couple episodes ago. The world is being pushed by all this obvious evil. The communism, the atheism. Yuva Noel Harari, AI rewriting the Bible. Oh my gosh, it's fulfilling Bible prophecy. That's the beast. That's the mark of the beast. That's the image of the beast. It's AI. It's a hologram or whatever else. These things are put on as a show to distract you and to make you think that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled when in actuality it is being fulfilled but in a very different way. These things are deceptions to make you believe that the future system, which is a Christian nationalist system, will be a good thing. The problem of atheism and secularism and the dark world order is solved by the great awakening. Awakening to what? Awakening to the light. 
not the light of Jesus, but the light of Lucifer. This is what it's going to. And again, if all this sounds crazy to you, that you know you're just joining, this is the first time you've looked into this series, then I highly, highly, and lovingly encourage you to go to the past episodes and get edified because not too many people are talking about these things. So let's take a look at where the mark of the beast comes from. It comes from Revelation 13. And of course, uh, this is about the second beast. The second beast is the one that institutes all these different things, like the image of the beast. So let's take a look. This is verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. This is a very important statement. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Probably, like I said, one of the most popular verses of the Bible, at least the end times that people know about. And also, I'm going to argue, probably one of the most misunderstood in the end times at least, because a lot of people are speculating on physical, fleshly things. And this is exactly what the devil wants you to do. As long as you're doing that, you're not paying attention to the broader, greater spiritual truths that are happening, and you will be deceived because you're part of the dialectic. You're, you're in the dark versus light paradigm, right? The big bad deep state is evil. We got to go with the Christian nationalist people because they're the good guys trying to save the world. No, they're both evil. Do you see what this is? The Bible says don't swerve to the left or to the right over 16 times. Christ said walk the narrow road. There's a lot in there that has to do with what we're dealing with today in a very polarized world. The devil is polarizing you either to the red or blue. Which one do you want? Red, blue, red pill or blue pill? Well, how about neither? I don't want to choose between your options. I want to choose the truth, which is in Scripture. So, it talks about a mark being on the le- on the forehead or on the hand. And of course, a lot of people are thinking, oh, again, you, know, you see these <laughs> these videos of people, I think in like Amsterdam or whatever, all these, you know, super socialist countries where these guys are inventing these chips and they're putting them in their hands. And, and they're like smiling about it. Like, oh my gosh, it's the coolest thing since sliced bread. I can open my car with it. It's so convenient. Everybody's like, oh, this is it. This is the mark of the beast. And it's because it's in the hand. That's what the Bible says. And it's like, okay, if you know your history, do you really think these things are not being put on to fool people into thinking that that's the mark? Again, part of the dialectic. You have to refuse this commie system that is being put in your face because you think it's what the Bible's telling you to avoid so that you can accept the solution provided, which is a return to Christian nationalism. Again, I've talked about all this stuff in, excuse me, in great detail. So what does the Bible actually say about the head and the hand? And this is very important because the times it does talk about these things, they are spiritual realities. Let's take a look at a few examples. So Exodus 13 verse 9, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now, the Jews today have taken this again because they're fleshly and they lust after signs. They have taken this and they've put, you know, those little black squares on their heads and in their arms. And it's like, oh, I got to put it on my body. Well, is that what God is saying? 
that as long as it's on your hand and your head physically, now you're faithful and righteous and you, you know, you're, you're basically walking in the law. No, the Pharisees are a perfect example. They were the most virtuous in terms of obeying and doing things right, right, for, for the sake of doing them right. But they, they were very far, you know, close to the cross, but far from it. At the foot of the cross, but far from it, just like the Roman soldiers. They were right at the foot of the cross, but very far from Jesus. They were, the Pharisees were very consistent in their behavior, but they did it for all the wrong reasons. So this is not the truth. It's what God is talking about here. When you put it, when you put something in your head, what does that mean? That means it's you meditate on it every day. The Bible's version of meditation, as composed to, as opposed to today's version, which is just Eastern mysticism of trying to clear your mind, it's the exact opposite. When the Bible tells you to meditate on something, it tells you to actively ponder and consider and use the brain that God give you. God gave you to reflect and to deepen your understanding. That's what it means to put something on your mind, on your head, that it's in your head. Literally, it's in you. It's, you're always thinking about it. The law of the Lord. What did, what did God say about this? And on your hand, the hand represents action. What are you doing? Are you consistent with what you believe? This is just fundamental you know, theology here, ultimately. Do you believe, and are you consistent with what you believe? That's what it's talking about here. Again, Exodus 13, a couple verses later, verses 15 through 16. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males, the firstborn that opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. What shall be as a mark? This is an important question. What what he just talked about, which is how they were freed from Egypt. Now, how? what do you mean here? Like, should people start engraving their bodies with kind of like a brief story of what happened with the 10th plague on the firstborn of Passover? Is that what it's like? If you were to really read, read, read this literally, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. Like, what are you saying? Like, I'm, I should just write that story on my arm so I can look at it and say, oh, okay, the Lord, you know, freed us from Egypt and killed all the firstborn, so I have to redeem my firstborn. No, it's, it's saying, let this be in your mind all the time. No matter where you're looking, if you have frontlets, right, just like a horse has frontlets, you are always reminded of what God did for you. It's in your head. It's on your forehead. That's what, you know, again, we'll we'll see this with Mystery Babylon, where the name Mystery Babylon is written on her forehead. That's not talking about a literal woman with a tattoo on her forehead. When something is written on your forehead, it's like, what's your identity? Who do you belong to? And we'll see how this compares to the seal of God, which again, it's, you've got contrast. You've got the truth, which is what God does through who? election, through the seal of God, and through preserving his saints. And then you have the mark of the beast, which is really just a counterfeit election that the devil is doing. He says, oh, these are my people. I'm going to mark them, just like God marks his people. This is really what's going on. But again, these are spiritual truths that you have to be aware of and, and be aware because you're not looking for, spir- for physical things. In Exodus 28, again, we see the same thing. 
Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold. This is for Aaron now and, and his vestments, his priestly vestments. And you shall engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. Okay, so there's a, a plate of pure gold that says holy to the Lord on it. And you shall fasten it on the turban of a, by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. So on the forehead, basically, of Aaron's turban, you have holy to the Lord as, as basically this name that, that shows Aaron's identity. That's his mark. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. This is verse 38. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, again, the physical, this is where dispensationalism really stumbles and a lot of people stumble because of this. They just look at the physical thing. Why does God have this important detail about, okay, make this plaque of gold, which is very valuable to me, or I should say very valuable, it's a valuable metal, right? Everybody recognizes gold as, as a valuable metal. Put on that holy to the Lord with my name on it and put my name on Aaron's forehead. He's the high priest. All these things, first off, were typifying Christ. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the anointed one. He's the one that fulfills all these things. But for Aaron, right, in, in the present time that he was alive, having a plaque on his forehead shows his identity in God. Unless he had that on, he couldn't approach God. So that was the mark. But again, it's, it's not necessarily a physical thing. It is a, is a spiritual thing represented by a physical thing. Just like the mark of the beast will be a spiritual thing that will be enforced by physical means. Maybe there's going to be a barcode. Maybe there's a chip. Who knows? But that's the chip in themselves is not the mark of the beast. This is what I want you to get, really, is that there's a spiritual reality being portrayed here. Now, again, compare this, all of this to the seal of God, which we see in Revelation throughout many chapters. In Revelation 7, verse 3, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There's that thing again with the forehead. Does that mean that God is going to come around and put a mark on people's foreheads? And you're going to, oh, there you go. That person is saved. And those other ones aren't saved because they have this glowing thing on their forehead. That's not what's happening. This is about basically the plan of election being fulfilled all the way until the end. And when those people are saved and that plan is fulfilled, then basically the end comes, right? That's pretty much what the Bible talks about. Revelation 9, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth and any green plant or, tree, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So if you're not saved, right, if God has not chosen to reveal himself to you and save you supernaturally from your being dead in sin, you know, if you're dead, you cannot make any choices. That's why the Bible uses this term, dead in your sins. Nobody can make a move towards God unless God makes a move towards them and resurrects them spiritually by being by regen regenerating them so they can be born again and have faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Faith doesn't come before regeneration. This is another talk, can of worms, but ultimately, this is what this is talking about, sealing on their foreheads as compared to, again, the mark of the beast, which is the counterfeit of election. That's the devil's people, and he's going to mark people, and those people who God has not supernaturally touched 
will be deceived into thinking, oh, that's a good thing. I align with the world. Yeah, sign me up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part of the world. Well, okay, yeah, that's because you were never chosen to be saved by God. And so God allowed you to just fall by the wayside with the world and be one of the devils because we were all belonging to the devil until God saved us supernaturally. Revelation 14, verse 1, the lamb and the 144,000. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So again, you have this idea of the name being written on your forehead. Who do you belong to? What is your identity? 144,000, it's not going to be literally 144,000 people that are saved. That's it. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. These are numbers that represent completion. Okay, so ultimately you have a symbolic number, which many of the the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. We talked about this in the thousand years episode, why there's no millennial kingdom in the future. It's right now. The the thousand, the number 1,000 in Revelation, when it talks about the thousand year reign, it's actually plural. It's thousands. So it's symbolic. It's not talking about a literal 1,000 period where Christ will reign on earth in the future. He's reigning as king right now. But again, if you're looking for physical things and you're jumping to the obvious, because that's what most people do these days without consulting context, then you'll be fooled by that. Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, we have this comparison throughout Revelation of there's a mark of the beast but then there are people who are going to have God's name on their foreheads. So which one do you have? Do you have the beasts? Does the beast own you? Do you obey the beast? Or do you obey God? And of course, the reassurance that we have as Christians, again, this is another can of worms, but really it shouldn't be because it's the heart of the gospel to have eternal security in your salvation. The reassurance we have as Christians is that who you obey is not a matter of your choice. It is a matter of God's choice. If God has chosen to save you, you will obey God. If God has chosen to not save you, then you will just keep living in the world and you wouldn't even be aware that you need a savior because we are all dead in our sins. But again, you have so many more of these. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 8, let's look at a couple more. Now this is the Old Testament again. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and it shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What is he talking about? He's talking about the law of God. It's not talking about a physical thing. Put it on your hand, and then you're going to know the law. No, it's saying bind them as a sign, like keep them close to your actions. Spiritual truth, spiritual realities. Again, the Jews do this literally today, but <laughs> it's not about the physical things, guys. It's really not. This is why Judaism is is not a continuation of the scriptures. It's a rebellion to the scriptures. But anyway, that's another can of worms. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Wait a minute. So if we're talking about physical things, how can you circumcise the foreskin of your heart? What do you think God's talking about? The same thing that he has talked about throughout history, which is giving you a new heart with new desires and new spirit being born again. This has been a reality since the beginning. 
It's not necessary. I mean, in the New Testament, it was fulfilled in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, this idea of being born again, having a new heart, new spirit, new desires, internal transformation, this has been throughout the Old Testament. It just found its fulfillment, beautifully so, in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So again, you have this thing that we've been talking about so far, and and here in this verse, it's abundantly clear. Because what is God saying? You shall therefore lay up these words of mine into your heart and your soul. Does your heart and your soul exist anywhere? No, it's a spiritual reality. Put the words in your heart and your soul and put them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets in your eyes. So what is this saying? It's saying put them in your daily life. Every single day, obey me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. That's the first commandment. So again, this is just an, an extension of who do you obey. Compare this to Romans 2, verse 28 through 29. For no, for one, sorry, for no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Again, same consistent message. It's not who is circumcised, it's an internal reality. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This has been a consistent teaching throughout the Bible. Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Again, look at all this meta, this spiritual language in which we, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You cannot be born again unless you die. Of course, we're talking about spiritual things, spiritual death, to your old self, allows you to be born again into a new creation so that you have the, the circumcision made without hands. All the physical things that the Old Testament were designed to be shadows and types of spiritual realities. God is spirit. He's not going to say something so trivial as, okay, bind these words on a little cube or on a strip around your hand and now you're holy. Has that ever happened? No. Anytime God has given physical instructions, like with the gold plate for Aaron's um, priestly garments and the turban, it's had an expressly spiritual purpose to point you, first off, to the Messiah, so that when we talk about Jesus the high priest, you understand, oh, okay, we have those older pictures that kind of flesh that out for us in a physical way. So pointing you to Messiah and also pointing you to spiritual truths that God's name is on your mind, that you belong to God. Ezekiel 9 verse, uh, sorry, chapter 9 verse 4 through 6, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed to it. And to the others, he said in in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall not show pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one whom has the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders 
who are before the house. This is judgment on Israel. And what is God saying? Again, if you understand prophecy, everything God does is like multi-layered. When he does something, it paints like a thousand pictures in the future of things that will come. This is obviously a foreshadowing of what Revelation talks about with the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Those who have the mark, right? The angels in the Revelation are going to seal people on their foreheads, just like Ezekiel was told to mark people on their foreheads who were basically groaning at the corruption of Judah and of Israel. People who were righteous in God's eyes in the sense that they had faith in God, they wanted to obey God, but they hated the system they were in. Put a mark on those people's foreheads. Now, this could be a physical mark, but really it's it's an association. Like, mark those people because they're going to be saved. And this is, again, a physical before the spiritual. The physical typifies the spiritual. Very, very important. Revelation 17, Mystery Babylon, verses 4 through 6. Uh, four through six. The woman has arrayed in purple, was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Again, who wears purple and scarlet? It's the Catholic Church. And adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, of course, the richest place on earth is the Vatican holding in her, and a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. What's on her forehead? Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of abominations. That means that who she is, her identity, she is a harlot, and a harlot has always been in the Bible an apostate group of believers. The woman in the Old Testament was Israel. Sometimes that woman was a virgin. Sometimes that woman was a harlot, depending on their stance with God. But either case, it was supposed to be the virgin because in Revelation 12, we see that that woman gave birth to the Messiah. And that's not Mary, as the Catholics believe. It is the nation of Israel, or I should say the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, because there was no state at the time. But there was a nation of Israel, and they gave birth to the Messiah. That's what they were the chosen people for. But if you keep reading Revelation 12, which dispensationalists do not, apparently because they wouldn't believe in this separate plan for Israel thing, the woman, what does the woman do after that? After the Messiah is born, she runs away from the dragon while the dragon is persecuting her. Well, wait a minute. The dragon persecuted the saints, as in the Christians. So we have in the same chapter, the woman representing the body of believers. At, in the Old Testament, it was exclusively the Jews for the most part. After the New Testament, that body was broadened into more people, the Gentiles. But it's the same group of believers that is represented by the woman. Christ has one bride, not a bride and a mistress, or two brides, or whatever other thinking you may want to think if you think that Israel has a special plan of salvation. Everybody's invited to the gospel. But nonetheless, my point is this. The woman is always a representative of a body of believers. If the woman is a harlot, that represents a church, an apostate church. What apostate church sits on seven hills and is the mother of abominations? We looked at that in the Mystery Babylon episode. Very clearly so. So the forehead is used a lot 
quite a lot in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, to denote mindset, identity, obedience. Who do you obey? A lot of times God would call Israel stubborn, stiff-necked, having a strong forehead or a weak forehead, clean or unclean. These things are all kind of related. Being, It's, it's talking about your mental attitude. If you had a strong forehead, you're just stubborn, you don't want to listen, right? Ultimately, these things are all related to the same thing, which is where is your mind? So that's why I believe that the mark, when it says that the mark is on people's foreheads or their hands, it's not talking about something you're going to get like a chip or whatever else, a barcode, a tattoo on your forehead. No, that's maybe how it might be enforced, but it's talking about people believing and obeying the beast. And some people will not necessarily believe, but they're going to do and obey so that they can have the comforts. That's why, again, it's the head or the hand. You can choose to obey and fully join this system because you believe in it. In that case, you're very deceived. Or you will cave to the pressure because a short-term, temporary, earthly benefit is more important to you than eternal salvation. Either way, Mark is on the head or the hand. Now, some people will, will have an objection to this and say, well, what about the word sharagma? Which is, oh, in the Greek, when he's talking about the Mark of the Beast, the, it, the word is sharagma. And that word is a, is a word for a physical mark. And my response is this. If we're to take that literally, which dispensationalists do, it's a physical mark. So you see it's in Greek, the word is a physical mark. Well, what is the context? The context is this is a vision. So then by that standard, will there be a red dragon flying around at the end of time? Will there be a giant angel that throws some big chain around this dragon and, and throws him into prison? I mean, what other things do we expect to see if we interpret the word sharagma out of context and say, well, see, it's a physical mark. Physical things in visions mean nothing, okay? A vision is supposed to, by default, use physical things as representations. John saw a lot of crazy things. He saw a beast with ten heads, or seven heads, ten horns. Like, is that even in nature? No. But he saw a physical thing that represents spiritual things. He saw a woman riding a beast. He saw a red dragon. He saw an angel with, with a ball and chain, a, a key. He saw a big abyss open. He saw a lot of physical things, but none of those physical things in his vision were talking about physical things in the world. They're talking about, rep they're representing spiritual realities. This is such an important point. So ultimately, the conclusion is this, guys. The mark of the beast is not something physical. It's not something literal. It's a spiritual reality talking about obedience. It's not a chip. It's not a jib-jab. It's not a barcode. It's talking about your actions and the state of your heart. And again, we know that God has a sovereign plan of election, and he will save who he has chosen to save. So the state of your heart is his responsibility. You cannot lose your salvation. And that's why, again, all this stuff about the end times, you can get lost in it. But if you remember the truth of the gospel, then you have peace because you know that no matter what happens, 
Nobody can force some kind of mark of the beast on you and then, oops, you lost your salvation. That's not how things work. Okay, the, the gospel gives us hope that even with this great evil that's on the horizon, we have a great, great hope that is unquenchable. Matthew 15, verse 11, what defiles a person? Very important words by Christ. Hear and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The Bible speaks of spiritual things. Nobody can force you to save, to uh, take the mark and lose your salvation. Salvation is in God's hands. And those who he has chosen to save will wake up to the truth and they will be saved. They'll be sealed. Those who he has not chosen to save will be going with the devil and his counterfeit system. Because the devil is trying to put a counterfeit eternity together where he will offer you eternal life through technology, through whatever else, through comforts of modern society, and fool you that this world is not going to be judged, it's not dying, it's not cursed. Just join me, it's going to be great. That's what this is all about. He wants to be God. I mean, if you understand that, then you understand what's coming on the horizon. The deep state is not the enemy. It's the false light. Again, remember election, remember the devil counterfeiting everything. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. So that's the whole point of Revelation telling you. It always does this. I love the book of Revelation. It gives you the bad news. It gives you like this big evil villain and what he's doing with the mark of the beast and killing people and persecuting them. And then it, it tells you like the hope. It tells you the truth that God is going to win. It does this over and over throughout the book. There's the big bad boogeyman who's, who's got the mark of the beast, but then don't worry. The believers will be sealed. That number is complete. Not a single you know, person is missing. And so God's plan will succeed because those who belong to God will, will belong to him. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to, everybody who belongs to God will be, will live, you know, because there will be persecution, unfortunately. But we are promised and reassured by Christ throughout history, throughout Revelation, that if we endure, which we will because he is in us, we will receive the crown of life. And so that's ultimately our hope that is beyond all understanding that the world can offer us. So I want to take now a little detour into two examples of how to poorly use scripture, how to poorly interpret the mark of the beast. And some of them, some one of these maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard of both of them. They're two somewhat popular, unfortunately, interpretations on the mark of the beast. And I'm using them as an example to show you how not to interpret the Bible. So keep that in mind because we're going to be going through some things that are very deceptive. These things are wrong. They're wrong teachings. There's wrong hermeneutics. There's wrong ways of looking at the Bible and jumping to conclusions. And of course, they're going to present certain things as evidence. But keep that in mind that this is not the way you want to look at things. But I want to expose them to you so that you understand and start to think spiritually. Now that you start to see that, look, this whole thing about the head and the hands, is it's not some physical thing. It's a spiritual reality. And remember that the people in power right now are trying to fulfill their false prophecy and make you think that we are going through the book of Revelation sooner then it actually is happening. All these things with the deep state, with communism, with Neuralink, all these things are designed to distract you into thinking that the evil is already here 
and the mark of the beast is happening and, and we're going to defeat it. And so now we're in a golden age, something along those lines. Now, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, whether it's going to be a false Christ that's going to come save the day after the third temple is being rebuilt, or maybe the Pope will just unite all the religions to himself and he's going to be the, the great peacemaker. Who really knows? But if you know who Mystery Babylon is, your eyes will be on the right things. And you'll know, again, not to be deceived by something like a shiny carrot of, oh my gosh, there's this brain implant. Now that's the mark of the beast. That's not what's going on. Remember, obedience, what do you believe? Where's your allegiance to? Who do you trust in? Do you trust in God to provide for you? Or do you trust in the beast to provide for you? That's really what it comes down to, guys. But look, this first idea... Actually, let me, let me preface this. The, these two ideas kind of go off of the same, same notion, which is in the actual papyri or the actual text that was written down when the Revelation uses the number 666, it's actually represented by three gre- Greek number number letter pictogram type of situation. So it's basically chi, psi, stigma. And we'll look at this. If you're listening to this, then just know that the, the Greek has just like Roman numerals, certain letters represent numbers. You can have letters in Greek represent certain numbers. And it was a common practice during that time to use abbreviations that were numerically equivalent. In this case, chi is a letter that represents 600, xi, xi represents 60, and stigma represents 6. So people have used this pictogram, right? Because it's basically three letters. It's kind of like an acronym, but really it's a pictogram that represents a number. People have used this idea, which again, it's found in the papyri that we have, to create some wild theories about the mark of the beast and what it is. And of course, it's this physical symbol and it's pointing. Again, everything, if you have eyes to see, and I hope that you are opening them by now, if you have eyes to see, you will realize how fleshly and worldly and wrong and misaligned these viewpoints are. But all of it is about saying this symbol, the chi psi stigma, this is the mark of the beast, the actual symbol. And John was trying to tell us something through this symbol. This is what the idea is. So the first idea has to do with Islam. And the second idea has to do with Jesus Christ, like the actual name Jesus Christ. And it gets, it just gets weirder and weirder, man. But the first theory is this. It's the idea that basically Islam is, is the beast. And, and the mark of the beast is Islam. And the, the Islam is going to take over the world. And we're going to have to wear you know, the, the mark on our foreheads or on our hands, just like how these terrorists wear them, right? And and the thinking is, I'm going to pull this up now. This is the Islamic end times and his mark. This is a study. Again, if you're listening to this, I'm putting all the resources for this episode in, in the comments. You can check them out. But there's a study that I've linked that I'm not going to read the study, but I'm going to look at the pictures and show you. They have a, a comparison between the Bismillah, which is, if you don't know what that is, it's it's like this Islamic mark where it's supposed to be the name of Allah. And, I mean, it just looks like a little squiggly type of snake thing, and then it's got a dash. 
Man, if you're listening, I, I don't know how to really describe it to you, but you just look, look up Bismillah. And they're saying like, look, if you flip this on its side, you have the dash and the squiggly. This is exactly like the middle letter of Revelation of, 60, of 666, which is basically this uh, Zai, the Z, with a line over it. So this is the Bismillah. And, in the, and then the X, which is the Chi, is representative of the swords crossing from, you know, all these terror groups like, uh, you know, whatever, the Islamic Jihadi groups and all this stuff. So you've got the, the two swords or sabers interle- intersecting, and that's the X. And then you have the Bismillah, which is flipped on its side, mind you, right? So we have to do some extra work here. And then you have, you know, the the, the stigma, which again, stigma is, there's no there's no correlation to that. It's just it's just there. So that's very suspect as well. So this is basically the idea is that you know Islam is the the beast, which it's not. Again, we looked at Islam at the the role of Islam. We we looked at Islam in depth in a couple episodes ago, and how the Catholic Church created Islam and what the role of Islam will be in the future, and how it's being brought back into union with the Catholic Church. Islam is not the second beast, but this is what these people think, that Islam is the second beast because it came out of the earth, the wilderness, and Islamic jihadis wear the badge on their forehead and on their palms, and John basically was trying to write down the symbol that he saw, like he saw their future jihadi symbol, and he didn't actually see a number, so he's trying to communicate the symbol. He didn't know what he was looking at, obviously, so he just wrote these these three letters down the pictogram. So, <laughs> what is the response to this? Well, there's a very easy response, and this is just very wrong for so many reasons. But first and foremost, the line that that is above these three letters is a practice that is done to denote that these letters should be interpreted as numbers. So, if we look, and again, that you can look at all of these yourself. These are different papyri that we have that have been discovered, very old, you know, from the 3rd century, 2nd century manuscripts. And you can see that the line that is over these three letters, again, chi, psi, stigma, is not over just xi. So if they were right, if these people who say, oh, it's abysmal and you just got to, you know, twist it on its side, it's not right because the line is not just over the xi, like these people thought, it's over the entire pictogram, which it's denoting, again, read this as a number. That's what it's saying. Then The manuscript basically says, listen, these are three letters, but read them as numbers. That's why they use the line above. You can see this in Papyri 115. You can also see it. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many. This one's kind of hard to make out, but you can see and this is uh, Papyri 47, I believe. Again, these are just... You can look these up, Papyri 115, 47. Um, this is another site that shows these close-ups of these various um, papyri. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, here it is. So basically, I mean, you can see the line is over all three letters. And again, if you're listening to this, you can look it up yourself. But this, I mean, a lot of these sites too, they're... <laughs> they're you have to be very careful, and again, that's why I reminded you in the beginning, these are all very suspect. They're not, 
good exegesis. They have some good things. Like in this one, it says, in the Greek numbering system of the ancient Greek alphabet, the last letter is Sampi. The fourth letter before Sampi is X, which is Chi. Therefore, X Chi is the fourth letter from the last letter in the Greek numbering system. It has a numerical value of 600. In the Greek alphabet, Sampi is the final letter and has a numerical value of 900. So, you know, these numerical values were understood and when people try to communicate numbers, they would just put the, the letters that represented the numbers and then put a line over it. But you have to be careful with these sites because they take a lot of liberty with history and with other things in the Bible. And so th- there's, you know, like a drop of truth, but then the rest of it's just poison. Um, but you also have some interesting things. This is a uh, a paper by Edward Pothier. This is in like 20, 30 years ago, actually, but it's a great paper on the number 666. It's an academic paper, but I want to read you something out of here. These Greeks, like us, used a decimal system, but unlike us, they did not use a zero number. Thus, although it was decimal uh, system, it was not a place value system. Therefore, more symbols were needed than just the nine plus zero, which we use. To represent the numbers up to our 999, they needed 27 different symbols. Nine for the units, one, two, all the way through nine. Nine for the tens. 20s, 30s, all the way to 90, and still another 9 for the for the 100s, 100, 200, all the way to 900. So they used a, a numbering system that was a little more complicated because of just like almost like an abacus to delineate larger numbers. For symbols, they used the letters of the Greek alphabet. However, an immediate problem arose since the Greek alphabet contained only 24 letters. To, f- to fill in the missing three, They used obsolete letters from previous alphabets, and somewhat confusingly, they were interspersed with the regular letters. The following table shows the assignments. Of course, he gives you a table of of what the... uh, And some of these, like the digamma, which we'll talk about a little later, which evolved into stigma, was was an obsolete letter, but they borrowed it because they needed more more letters to account for their numbers. To distinguish letters used as numbers from normal letters, a horizontal, here it is, a horizontal line was usually written above the letter numbers, or sometimes just a tick mark. It should be noted that the order of the letters needed to represent a number is not important, since this system is not a place value system. Most often, however, the highest value letter would be put first. So in this case, it was chi because chi is 600. Thus, to represent our number, of interest, 666, rather than using three identical characters, 666, which we would use in our numbering system. Uh, a first century Greek writer, if not spelling out the words just as we also can, would use three distinct characters, chi, c, and stigma. So again, the way they numbered their numbers is different than ours. This is the thing you have to understand. You have to study history and be diligent. They couldn't just write stigma, stigma, stigma. That, that Nobody would understand what you're trying to say in that time. In this time, we have a place value system, so, you know, we just write the same number, you know, three times in a row. But for them at the time in Greek, they had to use, okay, there's a 600, then there's a 60, then there's a 6. What does it come up to? Oh, okay, 666. I get it now. And, of course, you had a line over it to denote that in this case the letters weren't acting as an abbreviation for something, right? They weren't trying to be an acronym. They were intentionally being used as numbers. So all of this is very important because, first and foremost, 
it refutes this idea that John saw a mystical symbol that he's trying to predict Islam with or, you know, whatever else, which is just not true. John did not see a symbol. He wrote down a number. That's very clear. And it's clear from all the papyri that we have that show a consistent usage of the line. There's also no role for stigma in the Islamic theory. Remember, they have the chi. They're supposed the X is supposed to represent the swords of Islam, and you know the bismillah is supposed to be the 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 z the zai with the letter over it, with the line over it. But again, the line is over all three letters, so that's false too. But if if you look again, if you're so obsessed with how things look. Some of those papyri, it looks like the line is kind of over the side, but it's not. Any any academic will tell you that. So this is an illusion. And of course, there's no role for the stigma, the last letter. They think that stigma is meaning mark, but we'll get into that in a little bit later. It, again, it draws your eyes to the physical world. It, it stretches the imagination. You have to flip the bismillah on its side and assume that that's what John saw, which again, this is just, you know, it's, it's an example that I put out because a lot of people believe in this. And if they don't, they may believe that Islam is the second beast. And so when they come across this theory, they're more likely to accept it and not use rational judgment. But we talked about the role of Islam. We talked about how symbolism can be dangerous also because you can make symbols out of anything. We're talking physical symbols. And even, I mean, even spiritual interpretations, we have to be careful that they are consistent with the rest of scripture you know what is what is the standard of a symbol how do you know that you've crossed the line that you've changed so much that it's relatively meaning meaningless anymore like again with the bismillah having to switch it like a right angle 90 degrees and then you see now it kind of looks like you know, uh, and then if I bring this other symbol from a totally different place and I put it next to it, then it sort of kind of looks like what John wrote. Is that really like the standard that we want to evaluate information? Of course, the answer should be no, because it's nonsense. Now, some other points are Islam is not the second beast because it doesn't look like a lamb. The second beast that comes out of the earth looks like a lamb. What's the lamb associated with? Christianity. It it does not look like a lamb. Islam is anti-Christ, and it's very obviously anti-Christ. But some other system looks like a lamb, and it came out of an unpopulated area and became a world superpower. And that was the United States, and we looked at that. It looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon, meaning it legislates and behaves Luciferian. Islam did not work miracles and false signs that deceived people into worshiping Catholicism. The United States is working and creating false signs and wonders through all the things we talked about. Televangelism, Pentecostalism, hyper-charismatic movement, progressive Christianity, new apostolic reformation, passion of the Christ, the chosen, all these things in the image of the beast episode that we talked about, the union of church and state in the United States. Sounds crazy if you believe that the United States is all about separation of church and state, but that's a dialectic. Religion is more united with politics than ever, and it's going to come to a point where people will think it's a good thing to abolish the union of church and state or the separation of church and state altogether because we never want to go back to the big, bad, deep state that is atheistic and is putting transsexuals in charge of our kids. Do you see the reason for all these things now? 
It's again to push you from one side to the other, from left to right. The natural reading of Revelation is that the second beast comes around the same time of the wound. This is another thing to consider. So in in Revelation 13, you have John sees the first beast. It rules for 1260 years. It receives a mortal wound. It seems like it does. And then it heals and basically, you know, everybody marvels after the beast. That's the big picture. And then it, and then he sees the second beast. And the second beast, presumably if you just read this naturally, the timing of the arising of the second beast comes around the time of the second or around the time of the mortal wound to the first beast. That's the natural reading. It doesn't exactly say when this beast will come up. But if you just read it naturally, that's when it seems it would come up. Now, Islam was started in the 7th century. Okay? It wasn't for a thousand years later that the United States came up. And that's when the papacy received its mortal wound. Islam was started like right around the time that the papacy was started. Like about 100, 100 years after the papacy was made official by Justinian's decree in 538 AD. Muhammad, I believe, was late 7th century. So the proximity of these two religions, I should say the proximity of Islam coming up, is is far too close to the papacy. Now, the papacy received a mortal wound in 1798. What country became official around that time? Well, it was the United States. 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, in 1789, we were, America was declared as basically a sovereign nation. So that's a much likely more candidate. Again, if you, if you study these things like we did, then there are many other reasons why the U.S. fulfills the role of the second beast and not Islam. But beasts are political powers, not religious powers. That's another reason Islam is a religious power. It's not necessarily a political power. Of course, it has control over governments, but Islam was a religion the United States was a political power. It's a beast. The papacy, again, was wounded after 1260 years, and that's when the the second beast came up to help it come back to power. Do you get the point? Islam has done nothing to help Catholicism come back to power. Islam, at least for the time, has warred against Catholicism. The Crusades, the seeming opposition against Jesus, but they're going to they're going to bring them. I mean, of course, Islam is opposed to Jesus, but they're going to bring Islam back into the mother church through Mary. And we talked about this. Go watch the Islam episode. It's if it's all this stuff is new then you know, I hate to break it to you, but it's all working towards the same same outcome. But we talked about all this. So, the conclusion is, look, this whole idea with Islam being the mark of the beast or the Bismillah being the mark of the beast, it's nonsense. Ignore it. It's debunked, it's thoroughly, poorly executed, and it's not based on sound scripture. Now, the second theory, which is even more bogus, again, I saved the best for last in that sense, right? Is that Jesus Christ, the name in English, Jesus Christ, or IHS, is the mark of the beast. And again, they tie some truth into this because they pick a little bit on the Catholic Church and how... It's a mystery religion, but they take it so far. You will see. We're going to look at some websites, but the, the, there's a couple variations on this. And so the main thing to understand is that this comes from the sacred name movement. A lot of these people who are putting this theory forward 
are sacred name people, meaning who they say that the real Messiah is Yeshua or Yehoshua, because that's the Hebrew name. And Jesus is just a pagan false god invented by Rome. And that's going to be the Antichrist predicted by John. Some even go so far as saying that Christianity is the beast, which, again, this stuff just makes no sense. They say that, you know, look at the Crusades, look at the Inquisition, okay? So again, they they see some truth in history, right? But but they don't distinguish enough, and they they fall into great error. And some even deny the Trinity because of this. They say, oh, well, the Catholic Church invented the Trinity, so it must be pagan because it's three gods, and, you know, we don't worship three gods, and... There are a lot of things tied to this particular set of beliefs that I'm going to outline about the chi size stigma and how that's relating to Jesus Christ and all that stuff that we're talking about with the Mark of the Beast. It's a very dangerous movement because, again, it uses some truth. Catholicism is the beast. It is the beast system. It's the first beast. And the true identity of mystery babylon is catholicism the kings of the earth will give their power to this beast so there is some truth there it did persecute the saints it did create a lot of false teachings the trinity was not one of them the trinity is taught throughout the bible i mean <laughs> look at the first chapter of genesis or i should say in the first book which is genesis the lord was walking through the garden he had a physical body but yet god is spirit And then there was also the spirit that was hovering over the waters. You have the three persons already in the first book of Genesis. When God said, let us make a man in our image, to, to make is singular, but us is plural. So how do you make sense of that? Well, people didn't make sense of it. It was confusing. So much so that the Jews had a theory called two powers in heaven up until Jesus came on the scene. And then once Christianity started to flourish, the Jews who rejected Christianity said that the two powers in heaven idea was a heresy. Oh, now suddenly we can't have that because it might legitimize Christianity. But again, people believed in these things long ago, long before the papacy took power in the 6th century. So again, you have to know your history, but the arguments are that the chi Sai stigma spells the monogram of Christ that basically the Catholic Church uses and therefore... This is the sign that John saw. Again, it's physically obsessed. It's not talking about spiritual realities. It's talking about what's this look like? And it's this exact symbol. And this is what John saw. This is is such a limiting, you're limiting John, you're limiting revelation when you are tying it to these physical things. The power of these revelations, of these visions, are that they give you a broad and encompassing view of spiritual truths. They are not limited to these, oh, it's this symbol within this like little slice of history that's coming up, and that's what John saw. I mean, that's just so small-minded, really. It's very small-minded, but we're going to read a couple things. Okay, so again, (laughs) keep in mind that this stuff is just, I don't recommend going to reference this. I'm referencing it just to show you how not to read the Bible This is the true interpretation of the beast of Revelation. 666 equals Jesus Christ crucified. My God, please forgive me, Lord, but I have to expose this so people are not deceived and confused by this wicked doctrine. I'm just going to read a couple things here. 666 is a pictogram, an image, 
a monogram, short for a name, and a mark, a symbol like a letter. 666 translates to three letters in Greek, chi, psi, and sigma or stigma. The, pictu- the pictogram chi, 600, xi, 60, and stigma, 6 in Greek, gematria. The letters translate to Christ on a cross being pierced, the abomination that makes desolate. I mean, again, do they translate to Christ on a cross being pierced? They do not. This is all conjecture. And then again, they add biblical things like, oh, it's the abomination that makes desolate. We talked about the abomination of desolation. That's that's the Catholic Church that set up its teachings and prevented the people from going in and being saved. So again, these people kind of touch very lightly on some truth, which is why it's so dangerous. They have some pictures here, and you know, they show like the X, and they say, oh, it's, um, you know, it's the cross, and Chi is, it's the crucifix, and anyway, the monogram, the Greek letters Chi Psi Stigma, translates to XES in the Latin alphabet. X-E-S-U-S is a Hebrew variant of Jesus. X-E-S, X-S, and X was the monogram of Jesus throughout church history. X-E-S-U-S, variations of these are H-E-S, I-E-S, and J-E-S. Jesus Christ or Jesus H. Christ as he is known. He's not known as Jesus H. Christ. The H is for Horus, Zeus, Horus, Krishna. Again, where do they get this? I don't know, but again, I'm trying to expose it so you are not deceived. And there's so many things on these websites. There's one more thing I want to read. Conclusion. So Jesus translated to, oh God, I'm not even, earth pig, earthly swine, or the first and second beast of the earth. They made Jesus into chai, shy, stigma, 666, the image of the dying corruptible man, the abominable Babylonian tradition of sacrificing a pig to Ishtar Easter. I mean, look at how ridiculous this is. You have to be seriously deceived to to be so convicted about these lies. The cross is a bold display of the Vatican's true pagan roots, namely human sacrifice, black magic, which they hide in open through cross symbolism. We have, I have a whole video on how the cross is not pagan and how Jesus was not crucified on a stake. This is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus was crucified on a cross, and the cross actually has beautiful symbolism and imagery for us Christians. Now, again, as I mean, you should Wear a crucifix, I don't, but there's nothing wrong with the cross. Moving on. The real meaning of the name Jesus portrays that the Babylonian Catholic Church, the great whore of Babylon, there you go. So Rome sits on seven mountains as the whore in Revelations, sees the Easter sacrifices. So they have some truth here. You see what what I'm talking about? These people have some truth. They recognize something, but then they, they lead you astray, which is why it's so dangerous. The cross pollutes the altar and renders the temple of Yahweh man unfit for service or worship to Yahweh, causing the oblation daily sacrifice of the second temple to cease, e.g. Jesus is the Antichrist. This is like absolute nonsense. First off, we talked about the daily and that is not about sacrifices in these people. Again, these are Hebrew roots type of sacred name type of legalist type of people. So again, this is exposing them. This is There's nothing that's true on this side except for the things that I echo, which is Mystery Babylon. The cross is the biblical abominable sacrifice that causes the desolation of the temple of Yahweh and the temple of the human body. No, it does not. That is my opinion. Of course it is. And the doctrine of Christianity demonstrates this is true by worshiping a man above Yahweh on the Pesach of the Hebrews. Jesus is Yahweh. This is the part that you don't understand. 
Jesus is Yahweh. And this is these people do not get that because they reject the Trinity, which again, if you reject the Trinity, what do you have? What do you have? We're going to take a little break here. What do you have if you reject the Trinity? You have Jesus, Yeshua, however you want to refer to him, whether it's his Hebrew name or his English name. What about Spanish people? Jesus. What about Japanese people or African people? Do, do they Are they worshiping the right Jesus if they don't use the Hebrew name? Another, we'll read an article on that in just a second. But look, what do you have if you deny the Trinity? You don't have a divine Savior. If the propitiation for sins... How, how can man approach God? You got to think about this really critically, very easily. You don't need to have a lot of studies in theology to know the truth. How can man approach God if man is sinful and God is holy? How? Well, the Bible tells us through death, you die. That's how you die. You, you make yourself right with God by accepting the death penalty because sin equals death to a holy being. Well, if Jesus hadn't come, then we would have to die physically. We'd have to existentially die. Because Jesus paid the price for our debt, we can die spiritually through repentance and be born again. But if Jesus is not God, if he's not Yahweh, which he claimed to be God, and he did only things that God does, they wanted to stone him because he made himself equal to God. So again, these people are not reading Scripture, even though they claim to be very based on Scripture. But if you do not have a divine Christ, then his blood is created. That created blood cannot atone for all of humanity, for all of history, for eternity. Do you see the problem? Christ has to be divine in order for the atonement to work. So these people have no idea what they're talking about. But anyway, moving on. Revelation is a book deliberately either mocking Christ, misguiding Christians deliberately, or a book that warns us on the difference between the historical Jesus and the Jesus Christ of Christianity. Fearing that the pagan cross of Tammuz would be associated with Jesus, which certainly happened. People who, I've, I know people who believe this, and again, it's like, I don't blame you because there's so much information out there, but that's why I have that episode. Go check it out. Is it a, is it a cross or a stake? Is 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 cross representative Tammuz? No, it's not. The uppercase T, some people thought it looked and represented like the letter for Tammuz, but that was the uppercase T, not the lowercase T as in we, that we know with a cross. This is just misinformation. So this person thinks that Revelation is either a mocking text that was adopted by the Catholic Church to basically as a conspiracy. Do you see how, like, just uneducated this is? Revelation clearly testifies against the Catholic Church. But then if the Catholic Church adopted Revelation to mock Christians and deceive them, it, does, it doesn't make any, it makes any sense at all. I mean, it really doesn't. But again, it's just lumping a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of truth, a little bit of truth with a lot of misinformation into this hodgepodge of nonsense. And of course, they believe that the Jesus that you pray to when you say in Jesus' name is, is this false antichrist when you really should be praying to Yeshua or Yehoshua because otherwise it's you're not praying to the real Jesus, basically. And so you get into some really nasty traps here, and I'm, I'm not going to read most of this site again. I do not recommend going. I'm citing these as sources. They're in the sources. I do not recommend going to them because ultimately... 
um, they're, they're full of nonsense. But a couple things to respond to this, and we'll read an article that's very well written about this whole sacred name movement. So you just realize how stupid this argument is. It really is stupid. It's stupid because it's deceiving people into very dangerous things like denying the Trinity, denying Jesus, denying the value of Revelation as a text that God gave us to warn us about the future. It's really stupid. It really is. But as before, just like we mentioned, the line that's above the letters of the three letters, chi, psi, stigma, denotes that that is a number. It's not a symbol. This is a consistent thing in scribing. When scribes would have a line over the three letters, it means this chunk, this little acronym, read it as a number. So the whole idea of John seeing this symbol and somehow mystically relating it, you have to do a lot of jumps of logic to get to this point. Do you see the problem? Again, with both the Bismillah and this whole pictogram of Christ, you have to like, okay, well, the X kind of goes here and then this goes there. and Oh my gosh, you see, this is what it is. John must have saw this symbol. It's like, no, that's something that you're making up and you're forcing that into the text because you're not using scripture to interpret scripture. But stigma, stigma as the last letter, is an obsolete character. It's denoting six. There's no other meaning of stigma. If you recall from this page I just read you from, the guy was comparing sigma and stigma together. Oh, stigma means, you know, piercing through the hands. The chi is the cross. And so, you know, again, you have to really extrapolate these things. But stigma, which we'll read in just a second, back from that paper by Edward Pothier, the, uh, the academic paper on, on the various meanings of this number historically, stigma was an obsolete character that the Greeks adopted just so that they could have another placeholder for a number. Because remember, the Greek alphabet was 24 letters. They're missing a few characters to do their number system justice. So, and again, here's another thing before I read this really quick. Another very important thing. If this pictogram is representing some sort of obscure symbol about the cross and the crucifix and blah, 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 all this stuff. What is to say, you have to use critical thinking here, what is to say that all the other times when this is done in Revelation, because there's a lot of numbers, as we saw in some of those papyri, and you can look at them yourself, there's a lot of times when other numbers are used with the same delineation. There's a couple characters, there's a line over it. What about those situations? Are those pictograms too? What does that mean? Why is it only this one? Do you see the problem? Again, context is so important, and not just context in Scripture, but historical context. You have to understand, how did people understand things back then? How did they write language? How did they number things? You know, all these things are very important. But back to this article about 666 by Pothier. And this is important. This is about the Degama. This is for the letter six. Note the obsolete letters in brackets in the table. Digama for six, Copa for 90, and Sampi for 900. The Copa and Sampi will not affect us further except that the presence of Copa for 90 pushes letters such as Rho, Sigma, etc. one position down. The Digama at six, however, will be directly relevant for the representation of 666. 
This letter also became known as stigma, note the T, lowercase t, because the form of writing it looked like a ligature, writing together, of the two Greek letters sigma and tau, roughly corresponding to our S and T. If not done carefully, it can even look like just a sigma. Very important that you don't confuse these two, like that paper did, which would be an error. For most of the rest of this study, this obsolete letter pushed into service to represent the numeral for six will be referred to as stigma. So stigma is different than sigma. Okay, and again, this was an obsolete character that they imported strictly for the purpose of um, numbering, right? So again, this refutes this idea that there's this magical symbol hidden in these letters that you have to correlate and pin the tail on the Antichrist type of thing. They're using half-truths, again, like the papacy, the, the Catholic Church, the abomination of desolation, which, again, some of those things are true. The sanctuary represents the plan of salvation. The abomination that makes the sanctuary desolate is the Catholic system. It's the institutionalization of religion that makes people basically not go into the plan of salvation. It puts itself in between man and God. That's really what's going on here. The sanctuary is made desolate meaning the plan of salvation is made desolate. Nobody's going into the sanctuary the way they should go. They're going to the church. They're going to the Pope. They're going to their priests for forgiveness instead of having a relationship with Jesus. This is what it's talking about. Very simple, if you have spiritual eyes. But they, you know, you can't conflate Christianity with Catholicism. This is a huge error. Religion and papacy and all these things, the Jesuits, whatever, institutionalized religion, that's the problem. It's not Christianity. Christianity is a way of life. Also, the cross is not a pagan symbol. I, I'm not going to talk too much about this because I already haven't mentioned a few things. Go watch the video on it or listen to the episode. A lot of evidence. We look at the encyclopedias. We look at historical records. We look at so many other things that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was crucified on a cross, on a T-shaped cross, just like the Bible says. He wasn't crucified on a stake like Jehovah's Witnesses say. And, number two, the T-shaped cross does not represent Tammuz. This is nonsense. It's not true. But the, the, the theory that these people put forward with the Mark of the Beast relies on this duality of Yeshua or Yehoshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, and Jesus, which is the English name. But the question is, are these two really different people that John is warning warning us about, or are they really the same? So let's take a look at a great article, and this is titled, Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, Some Other Form, Who's Right? And of course, they start with this typical dialogue of, Yehoshua is the true name of the Messiah. No, it's Yehoshua. All true believers use the name Yeshua. Since the end times, we now have the name of the Lord revealed the right way. If your preacher uses the name Jesus, leave that church immediately. I mean, these are the typical things that you hear from people like that I just read to you uh, from that paper with, where they're trying to say the pictogram is representing, you know, the Antichrist, which is Jesus, which is, again, it's just so stupid. But the premise of their argument with some variations is the following. Number one. It is impossible to translate a name from one language to another. Therefore, the Savior's name has to remain in its Hebrew form. The name Jesus, which is the Greek form of the name Yeshua, 
did not even exist before the crucifixion. It was invented by the Romans or the Jews or the Catholic Church or Constantine or, you know, insert, you know, your Antichrist person here, basically. Number three, Jesus is a pagan Greek name. Jesus has nothing to do etymologically with Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua has a meaning in Hebrew, but Jesus does not mean anything in Greek. Jesus was fabricated by an enemy of the faith and means behold the horse or maybe a pig or hail Zeus or some such thing. Remember, again, may the Lord forgive us for looking into these things, but ultimately they have to be exposed. That guy said, oh, this is the the pig being sacrificed by the battle. I mean, it's just, it is so blasphemous, but it's blasphemous because it's so uneducated. But these are all summarized here in this paper. The use of Jesus or Jesus or other forms is a plot by the Vatican to blaspheme God and the Savior. If you use that form, you have fallen into their trap and are apostate. Number eight, Greek or Latin names are by definition polluted with paganism. Therefore, the Lord cannot have the name Jesus. If you claim to follow Jesus, then you cannot be saved because there is no other name by which we can be saved except Yeshua. So again, all this stuff is just so legalistic. This line of thinking is rife with historical and linguistic errors and is logically self-contradictory. It fails to explain how the name Jesus could be applied over 1,270 times to the Lord in the New Testament, let alone in all the literature of the early church without a single exception. Number one, it's impossible to translate a name from the one language to another. This is false. George H.W. Bush is sometimes called Jorge in Spanish, Giorgio in Italian, and with the French form Georges or Georges, as in this article, and he cites a French article where George Bush is translated into a different name. So, there you go. Number two, Jesus, the Greek form of the name Yeshua, did not exist before the crucifixion. It was invented by the Romans or the Jews or the Catholics. I, and this is the response. I have access to a program called Thesaurus Linguae Graeciae, TLG, which is a digital database that allows one to look up all the 10,000 Greek texts from the earliest writings through A.D. 1453. Boy, that's quite the program. I have used it to put together a concordance of every single reference to the name Jesus in ancient Greek writings. If the pig or horse or horus or hail Zeus theories were true, then we would expect the data to show that the name wasn't used before or around A.D. 30. Instead, what do we find? More than 300 pre-New Testament references, men, always Jewish, not Gentile, named Jesus. Read that again. Instead, what do we find? More than 300 pre-New Testament references. Men, so it's a man's name, always Jewish, not Gentiles, named Jesus. The name Jesus, pronounced Jesus, first appears in the literature of the 3rd century BC, specifically in the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The earliest appearance of the Septuagint was a translation of the Pentateuch, from the Hebrew into Koine Greek. The rabbis who carried out the version were expert in the Hebrew scriptures. Fluent in Greek, they rendered the name Joshua, Jesus. So there you go, it's false. Jesus was in use even before Jesus' time. Did you know that? Now you do. There's, there's a, this is a great article. I'm just trying to go through all the different responses. Jesus is a pagan Greek name. <laughs> false. My TLG search reveals that there are about 300 references of people named Jesus from before Jesus of Nazareth. And every single one refers to a Jewish man. 
Conversely, TLG yields not a single instance of any Gentile person with that name. That's because it was derived from the Hebrew and was a purely Jewish name, as the Greeks and the Jews well knew. An interesting light is thrown on this fact by the example of Jesus, the brother of Onias. This is by Josephus, mentioned above. When he wanted to become more Greek, he changed his name from the really, really Jewish-sounding Jesus to the Greek name Jason. As his name change might suggest, he tried to force the Jews to accept Greek ways. So we have history that proves these things are, are just false. Another one, Yesu has nothing to do with etymologically with the Hebrew name Yeshua. This is also false. In Greek, when someone wishes to label the technical term as inflect, a word as masculine, it adds the S sound, the Greek letter sigma at the end. Very simply, names in Greek are inflected, not perverted, not distorted, just inflected, by adding an S sound, like the, the letter sigma or C, at the end. That's why so many names of Greek males end with an S sound, like Zeus, Hades, Ares, Achilles, Theseus, Socrates, Aristotle, Alexandros, like Alexander the Great, Herodotus, and so on. If you look at the names in the Septuagint, many Jewish names add a sigma at the end. Moshech is Moses, becomes Moses. Ezra becomes Esdras. Isaiah becomes Isaios. Jeremiah becomes Jeremias. Jonah becomes Jonas, Sephaniah becomes Sophonias. Does anyone wish to claim that these names all were vandalized by being represented with Greek letters or made to sound like a pig, a, ho- a horse, or Zeus? In the New Testament, John the Baptist goes from being Yehohonan to Ioannis. His father is Zecharias. The Jewish priest Caiapha becomes Caiaphas. Among the followers of Jesus, Kepha, Peter, changes to Kephas or Cephas, Yaakov, James, changes to Jacobos, B because there is no V sound in Greek, Barnabas picks up a final S, Yeshua, too, takes a final S. This is normal, natural, and it's not a cause for panic because this is the way languages work. Another point is this. Again, anyone who studies both languages knows that when words are transcribed from the Hebrew to Greek, the sh sound, the Hebrew letter shin, is written out as an S. Yeshua is spelled with the letter Shin in Hebrew, but Greek does not have that sound, and so it substitutes Sigma. There are plenty of parallels in other languages. Making a Greek speaker say Sh would be like making an English speaker to use the French guttural R or to trill the R as Spanish people do. The receptor language does not accommodate it, and so something else is substituted. To give a parallel example, the Spanish letter Enye does not exist in English. That's why in school the teacher said that the name of Columbus's first caravel was the Nina, where the Nina, whereas its actual name was La Nina. It's a technicality, and unless someone is a professor of 15th century explorers, it doesn't matter much how you pronounce it. Thus, the Hebrew name for Joshua, which is Yeshua, adds an S sound at the, at the end, and B, it swaps the SH sound for an S, and thus it becomes Yesus. So Yeshua becomes Yesus. These are the normal rules from transliterating a name from the Hebrew to the Greek. No mystery, no conspiracy. Number five, Yeshua has a meaning in Hebrew, but Yesus does not mean anything in Greek. This is also false. If someone tells you that the name Jesus does not mean anything in English, 
then you might answer back that the Messiah or Mashiach or Yeshua don't mean anything in English either. Oh, but of course they do, someone will say. Yeshua means he will save. Well, yes, it does, but only if you already know Hebrew. Or, as it's most likely, if someone has explained it to you. In the same way, Jesus means he will save under the same conditions. If someone who knows the Hebrew name, spelled in Greek letters, explains it to you. This is just what the Jewish theologian Philo does in his first century book, Change of Names. And there's a quote here again from history that testifies to these things being true. The name Zeus in Greek is spelled not with a sigma, but with a Z sound or a Z sound, a Zeta, which is capitalized as Z. It does not have the same diphthong as Jesus, but instead another one, EU, U. Not only is it totally unrelated to the name Jesus in spelling, Zeus and Jesus don't even rhyme, not in the Greek at least. This suggests to me that the Hail Zeus theory was probably invented by a speaker of English, since the two words rhyme a little in English. Again, in Greek, these things have no relationship, so people who are coming up with these things are doing so by taking it out of context. The use of Jesus or other forms is a plot by the Vatican to blaspheme God and the Savior. If you use that form, you have fallen into their trap and you're apostate. False. Step one, the Latin-speaking church leaders somehow got their hands on a time machine. Step one would have been tricky part. Step two, they'd have to go back in time to the first century AD to make sure all 1,270 instances of his name and all of the resulting 6,000 Greek manuscripts from the first century onward had only had one and only form of the name of the Lord, Jesus. Step three, for good measure, they changed Joshua ben Nun's name to Jesus in the New Testament references that mention him. Step four, they then leaped further back in time in order to hold thousands of Jewish parents at knife point and force them to name their baby boys Jesus during the years between the 3rd century BC and the early 2nd century AD, even though everyone in theory must have hated the name. Step 5. They then threatened Jesus Justus, Jesus ben Sirach, and others not to change their names once they reached adulthood and realized they were cursed with a stupid and wicked moniker. Step 6. Are you exhausted yet? Then they bounce further back in time to the year 280 BC to force the translators of the Septuagint to use the name Jesus as the Greek form of the name of that man, God, Joshua. Step seven, the conspiracy team returns to its own century. So again, I hope you see how ridiculous all of this really is. Number eight, Greek or Latin names are by definition polluted with paganism. Therefore, the Lord could not have used the name Jesus. False, just like all these other ones are. For one thing, Jesus is not a Greek or Latin or Roman Catholic name. It is a purely Jewish name that happens to be pronounced in a way that was intelligible in the Greek language. Very, very important, probably the key understanding. It is a Jewish name that is pronounced in Greek. Very, very important. It was the apostles themselves who used that form. And if the apostles imagined that the Greek names were dirty, then why do they themselves go around with Greek names? When we got to heaven... That's a question we'll have to ask Andrew, Philip, the two Simons, let alone the seven deacons, Stephen, Philip, and the rest of them, because these are all Greek names. Andrew means manly man in Greek, but not in Hebrew. Philip means he who likes horses. It's the names that these parents gave to them with no apparent hint that they were falling into apostasy. So a lot of the apostles had Greek names, and the, the Jews didn't think that was like a dirty thing to name them that. 
If you claim to follow Jesus, then you cannot be saved because there's no other name by which you can be saved other than Yeshua. So they're using scripture again in, in twisting scripture to justify their perspective. First of all, let's be clear on something. Whenever someone writes a blog in English and says we must use the name Yeshua, spelling it out in Roman letters, Latin letters, as in the Roman church, then neither is that person writing out Yeshua as originally written. Good point. It's not in Hebrew, like in actual Hebrew characters. They write Messiah with two S's, which just isn't right. They too are falling short and by their own lights and should, I suppose, expect to come to grief in the final judgment. Second, when Peter tells the Sanhedrin that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the verse that these people are using from Acts 4 verse 12. He probably spoke to them in Aramaic. Nevertheless, the author of the book of Acts composed this account in Greek and used the name Jesus in his account, with no footnote telling the reader to please not pronounce the name in the form that he had just written it. So there was nothing to say, hey, I'm writing this in Greek, but it's actually going to be in Aramaic. That's the name that you have to say. Just silly. In addition, the name in this verse is Hebraism. It means in the authority of. Again, this is a cultural thing. It's not an actual like magical incantation that you say and now you're saved. It's on the authority of or on behalf of. It doesn't mean pronouncing it just like this so you can be saved. Paul exercises the demon from the Philippian slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning in the authority of Jesus. Paul preaching in the local dialect, Koine Greek, and Acts recording that Jesus was the form of the name Paul used. So he used Jesus when he's casting these demons out because he was in Greek territory. Confronted with the Lord's power, no demon can smirk and say, Ha! You pronounce the name with an S, not a SH, so I'm just not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay put. I mean, it's just, it is so, it is so silly. By the way, they all spelled the pronouns differently in the Hebrew, and that is, they're all not the same name. So if you, you have, he has a list here that you can look. Again, you can look this up if you want, but there's, I don't know how many are, maybe 10, 15 different pronunciations of Yeshua, of Joshua. There's Yeshua, Yehoshua, Jehoshua, Jehoshua, Yahusha, Yahshua. I mean, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but these there's a lot of pronunciations. So that's the point. By my count, people who insist on one and only of the above names have about one out of 13 chance of escaping condemnation. <laughs> of course, of these, Yeshua actually exists in the Hebrew scriptures, also Yehoshua, the others are also made-up forms from people who don't know Hebrew or perhaps who have seen the light through mystic study or their own revelations or rewriting the name through their own sketchy experiments with Strong's Concordance. Again, just people who are doing these things are not utilizing sound study principles. In fact, the idea that pronunciation of the Lord's name must be precisely, scientifically, exactly pronounced in this way and not the other is a sign that people misunderstand what they are doing we call on when they call on the name of the Lord. They are treating the divine name as if it were a fetish, a magical formula. Exactly. In magic, you must pronounce the name exactly right, or the whole thing might blow up in your face. Thus, the sacred name movement has become a magical name movement. Interestingly, we have many magical papyri from the first century and onward, where pagan and Jewish magicians used the name Jesus in order to heal or drive out demons as an abracadabra, a power word. Of course, he's being sarcastic here. The sons of Sceva made the name, made the same goof in Acts 19, verse 3, when they tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
Their error lay not in how they pronounced Jesus, they used the same pronunciation that Paul used with the Macedonian girl, but in the disgraceful way that they tried to exploit his name for profit. So again, it's not the physical, fleshly things, it is these spiritual things. And again, this is a longer article, so I know we, we kind of read through a lot of things here, but you can look it up. It's a great research. You have to do your research. You have to do your research because this theory is totally bogus. It ignores history. It ignores language studies, linguistics. The sacred nave movement is legalism. And a lot of people, unfortunately, are falling for, for parts of it. I mean, the thing that I read you with with the initial thing that I was reading you as kind of a sample, they're very extreme. There's people who have written books on how, oh, you got to buy my book and see that the true Antichrist is actually Jesus. And they have a picture of the Catholic, you know, some Catholic rendering of Jesus with the sacred heart. And I mean, look, there's some truth to this in the sense that the Catholic system is the Antichrist power. And there may be a false Christ in the future because they they are gearing the, the world up for a false fulfillment of this false prophecy they committed to. This I've talked about this myself, that there may be a false Christ. So again, some of this stuff touches a nerve, and it touches on some things that, that might be true. But the, but the greater understanding is false. It's very poor because they reject the Trinity. They're legalist about how you use the name. And again, <laughs> the movement is a religion of its own. They reject religion, but yet they're extremely religious about the Hebrew feasts, and you have to say the name right, and otherwise you're not saved. And, you know, it's all about the Father, and Jesus is just kind of, was just there. He's not really God. I mean, it's its own religion, and it's a false religion. So that's the irony. Jesus, which is translated to Jesus in English, was used in the New Testament long before Jesus came to the earth. That was what a lot of Jews had Greek crossover, and that's how they said Joshua. That's how they pronounced it. So they wrote it down how they pronounced it. Yeshua is Jesus, which is Jesus. It's the same person. It's talking about the same person, which is our Redeemer. Therefore, John could not have been writing about a different Jesus. He's not making a distinction between this Anglicanized, Catholicized Jesus and the true Hebrew Jesus that never said he was God. And that if you're worshiping Jesus, oh, you're you're blaspheming God. I mean, this is, how blasphemous can you get? This is literally the snake whispering in your ear and confusing you. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible, so that's why I wanted to expose it. And again, what about Jesus in other languages? Spanish, Japanese, African languages, Native American languages. How would people relate to God if God was, oh no, you have to pronounce it a certain, would God ever do that? Do you think that God would ever say, you have to say this magical word, otherwise you're not saved? That is just a profound misunderstanding of the gospel. Somebody who believes that does not have the gospel. They do not understand salvation, which is very evident from all the things we covered. So, I, <laughs> I know this has been a lot, but I hope you've understood and seen how crazy these theories are and how much pseudoscience they they intertwine with the Bible to support their ideas. That's why I wanted to expose you to these things. Because look, Satan is trying to get your attention on the physical world rather than on the spiritual truths. The mark of the beast is not this obsession over how it looks and what does the symbol mean. It's, it's talking about this, and if you rearrange it just right, it's about this or that. 
That's not what this is about. First off, it's a number. Okay, now combine all these things that we just talked about, all these conspiracies with existing conspiracies like barcodes, jib jabs, microchips. What do you get? You get a world that is confused and is looking for fleshly things rather than seeing the true Antichrist power at work. And again, this is why I put this episode at the end of the series or towards the latter end. Because if you don't understand who Mystery Babylon is, if you don't understand who the beast is, who the second beast is, what's going on with all these beasts and what are they doing? How is Mystery Babylon coming back to power? If you don't understand that, then this Mark of the Beast stuff will throw you for a spin because it's such a dramatic thing, the idea that nobody's going to be able to buy and sell who doesn't take this mark. And it's it's such a traumatic fleshly thing, especially in the world we live in, that just robs your attention if you don't have discernment. So it's just creating confusion. And I hope now that your eyes are opened to some of these things so that we can consider some actual options. So now I want you to consider a couple things. All the numbers used in Revelation are symbolic. There's no gematria used in the Bible for anything, even though people like to use gematria. John did not specify a language that you'd have to be like, which language is he using? He didn't say which language it would be like, oh, is it going to be in Arabic? Is it going to be, you know, in Greek? Is it going to be in in Hebrew? Like, so gematria is very, it's a sketchy thing. Whenever you see people doing gematria, you have to be wary. The Bible was written in Greek. It was written in Aramaic. You know, so John never said, look, codify these letters and try to do all these number games and, and see what's going on. It's very clear. The numbers, the letters that have a line over them are numbers. It's just a straight number. But why is it important to avoid gematria? Because gematria is Jewish Kabbalah mysticism. The Bible does not use secret codes to tell you secret knowledge. It's, you know, the the knowledge that is secret is the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has to open your eyes to, which is the cross, the gospel, because the cross is foolishness to this world. It's the best kept secret. People think it's foolishness when in reality it's the power of God to save your life. And so you can only know about that if the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. But the Holy Spirit is not going to guide you into these secret mystical understandings of gematria and you know whatever else the people are doing these days. So we have to be careful because again, even on my phone or on your phone, you can type in mom, like let's say you're calling mom, M-O-M. How would you type mom on your phone? You would use the number six because the number six has the letters M, N, and O, I believe. So you would type six, six, six. <gasps> Does you is your mom the beast? <laughs> is your mom the mark of the beast? Obviously not. So the point is, we have to be careful with numbers and what they mean and trying to tie them to different things or meanings. However, the number 666 is used once in the Bible. And it's used for Solomon's gold and the amount of talents of gold that he had. So he had a lot of he had a lot of gold. And so what could we draw from that experience? Well, Solomon was corrupted by demons even though he had everything. Symbolic maybe of the world corrupting your heart. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's what the Bible tells us. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. So there's a constant theme throughout the Bible of wealth corrupting the soul. This is pretty consistent, especially in the New Testament. 
So the mark of the beast is going to, we know that the mark of the beast is going to force you between choose, choosing to obey God at the cost of material comforts or choosing to obey the devil at the benefit of material comforts. Those who will choose to obey the devil will be corrupted by the gold, quote unquote. And so there's something here that represents physical, fleshly, material corruption. Six is also the number that represents sin. And if it's used three times in a row, that's symbolic of, of like very, you know, very intense sin or very maximal understanding of that word. So if you think about it, rejecting God's offer for salvation and choosing the world instead, that's basically like the unforgivable sin. That's And of course, when you hear that word unforgivable sin, you shouldn't freak out because as a believer, we are protected from that. The only unforgivable sin is rejecting God because he is not going to forgive you. But those people he's not going to forgive are the ones he's never chosen to forgive. This is why, again, election solves so many problems. So the people who are going to choose the mark, they're going to commit the highest sin, which is rejecting God and, of course, rejecting life as a result. So, all the previous verses that we talked about, the head and the hand, put this together now, were about spiritual things, about who do you obey, what's your identity, who do you belong to, what's in your mind, what's in your heart. 666 talks about sin. It's potentially relating to worldly corruption. We know that the mark has to do with buying and selling and having comforts in the world. When Jesus comes, it will be like the days of Lot and Noah, where people were celebrating. Why are they celebrating? Because they took the mark. They have all the worldly benefits. So what that means is when the mark is implemented, however that's going to be, we don't have too much time. We know that the time is near because some people will be left alive. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus will come after the mark has been taken because people will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, meaning they will be partaking of the benefits of society. So what is it? What is the mark? Well, here's a couple of things I want you to remember. In Daniel 7, verse 25, the little horn power will think to change times and laws. Now, I want you to compare this with Daniel 2, verses 21. He changes times and seasons. This is talking about God now. He is God. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So who is the one who changes times and seasons? Who is the one who establishes the law? It's God. Who has always wanted to be God? The devil. The devil wants to be God. So this is prophesied in Daniel that the Antichrist power will think to change times and laws. Now, every power in the history of powers has always changed laws to some degree. They've always had their own calendars. So what is this really talking about? It's talking about God's laws. It's not talking about the obvious, like, okay, a king came to power and he created his own laws. That happens all the time. What it's talking about specifically is God's law and God's time. Now, there's a couple things that go into this. We talked about this in Mystery Babylon. One of them is the Sabbath, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But another one, look at the liturgical calendar. The feast day, I don't believe that you have to worship the feast days or honor the feast days. If you want to, that's great. But again, sacred name people will think, oh, you need to do this feast day and that day, and we have to align with the Hebrew calendar and blah, blah, blah. Look, the point is that God had his own calendar. He had the lunisolar calendar, 
28 day months, 13 months out of the year. Look on a back of a turtle. Turtles are living calendars. They have 28 little segments on the outside and 13 segments on the inside of their shell. Turtles are calendars because a calendar is 28 is 13 months of 28 days. That's what the sun and the moon do. And of course you have one day for the resurrection. Everything points to Christ. The, the, the loony solar calendar pointed to Christ. The feast calendar, the feast days that God established pointed to Christ like Passover or first fruits or unleavened bread. All these things pointed to Christ. Now we live under a Roman calendar, which again was established by the Roman empire. It started with Constantine who officialized the seven day week. We talked about this in the past. And, you know, Pope Gregory, who basically made the Gregorian calendar. The Catholics also changed the laws, the Ten Commandments. They got rid of the second commandment on images. I wonder why. And they split up the, the last commandment of coveting into coveting your neighbor's wife and coveting your neighbor's good goods. Because, of course, if you get rid of one commandment, you need to do something to create a Ten Commandments again. And so, that's already been fulfilled by the Catholic Church. That these things have happened. That times and laws have been changed. We live in a pagan system with a pagan calendar. The day begins at sunrise in the Bible, yet the day today begins when? At midnight. The darkest time of the, of the day begins the day. That's not beginning. That's death. Everything starts with life. When the sun comes, that's when life happens. The new year in the Old Testament began in Nisan. Now, of course, there was a Tishri New Year, but Nisan was basically when the New Year began, uh, agriculturally, I believe. And why is that? Because the spring is denoting life. When the spring came, that's when life came. That's the New Year. Makes sense. When does the New Year start for us today in our Roman system? At the deepest, darkest point of death, in the middle of winter. January 1st, January, the god of doors, Janus. Our months are named after Roman emperors, Julius Caesar, July, Augustus Caesar, August, September, November, October. Those are, you know, uh, Sept is seven. It's a Roman name for seven. Oct is eight. November is nine. So you see, we're in a pagan system already that has changed the times and the laws. But specifically, the thing I want to point to you is the Sabbath. And we talked about this. I have a whole episode on the Sabbath. And I believe that the Sabbath is a very important part of this Mark of the Beast thing. And I'll explain why I believe that. But the power of the law that identifies God as the one who authored the law as creator and redeemer comes from Exodus. And we see that in Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh, uh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. How do you know that the seventh day, which is one of the commandments, is part of the law? Because the one who created the heavens and the earth, the creator, is the one who authored the law. You obey the law because of the authority behind it. In this case, it's the creator who's the authority behind resting on the seventh day. Now, later in Exodus, we see the Redeemer side of it. Exodus 31, verse 13, the Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So who is the creator and the redeemer? It's the Lord. How is that important to the law? Well, the reason the law is the law is because God has the authority as the creator and also, very important, as the redeemer. The Sabbath today and the way the Jews celebrate it has become a legalistic burden. God has said not to turn the Sabbath into a burden. It's supposed to be a delight that we get to rest knowing that God provides. How much more so as Christians do we have that benefit and that reality through Christ who freed us not from Egypt, but from spiritual Egypt, from sin, from death, and he's given us eternal life. This is the profound beauty and joy of connecting to God on the Sabbath. It has changed my life to celebrate the Sabbath. I'm not legalistic about it, but at the same time, it is one of the commandments that we've told that is good for our moral health and standing with God. So if you believe that stealing is wrong, if you believe that killing is wrong, if you believe that adultery is wrong, that coveting is wrong, that idolatry is wrong, if you believe those things are wrong, then you should also believe that working and doing your own pleasure on the seventh day, which for all intents and purposes is Saturday, is also wrong. We are not to work on that day. We are to rest because God rested on that day and sanctified it by resting on it. He also rested in the tomb as Jesus Christ, also on the Sabbath. So again, everything the physical points to greater spiritual realities. But here's the thing. By changing the law, the devil is trying to claim the title that belongs to God. He's trying to claim the title of the author of the law through obedience as the one who is the creator and the savior. And this is all going to make sense. I mean, look, it sounds crazy, but if you're the devil and you're creating a false golden age, which we've talked about, and you're going to usher in this false system that's going to demand a mark of obedience if you want to participate and get all the fruits of this false golden age, then the people who are taking the mark of the person, the devil, who basically changed the law, you are now acknowledging that you are aligning with the devil as the creator, meaning he's the creator of this false world and false system that you enjoy and and trust in, and he's your redeemer. He's the one that's come to your rescue with all these worldly goods. Do you see what this is about? This is a much greater reality than just, you know, what, what chip is in your hand or whatever else. It's about obedience. It has always been about obedience. The Garden of Eden was about obedience. Eve obeyed the devil instead of trusting and obeying God. And so that's just been the story of mankind since the beginning. The mark of the beast is going to be about who do you obey? Do you obey the world and the devil, or do you obey God? Now, we can't take Revelation out of context. We have to use the book of Daniel. And remember how both books are related to each other. Remember how to use the day-year principle. Remember the 1260 days is 1260 actual years throughout history, and how Basically, all these things were fulfilled in history, and they identify who Mystery Babylon is. It's the Catholic system. It's the papacy. Daniel predicted the rise of Rome and a power that would come out of Rome, which is the little horn. This coincides perfectly with the first beast and also the woman riding the beast because it's the first, it's, it's riding a beast very similar to the first beast. 
The second beast is a false Christian type of power. We looked at that as the United States. That's going to bring people back to worshiping the papacy. Again, if all this is news to you, then I please encourage you lovingly and sternly to go watch the previous episodes or listen to them. This second Christian, <clears throat> false Christian beast system works signs and wonders that deceive people into making an image to the beast, which is representation, which is a copy of the previous Christian nationalist system that honors the first beast. Meaning, this is going to happen in the United States. It's going to be exported to the rest of the world. People, the kings of the earth, will give their power to the beast, to the woman riding the beast. So the church-state union, which will be controlled by the papacy, will be exported throughout the world, and people will think we're in a golden age, possibly a millennial kingdom, because most people believe that. They've been fooled by these things. So the evil, the big bad evil, is not the deep states, not the communist. It's the white hats. It's the ones that are promising to usher you into a golden age of prosperity and back to conservative values, back to good old family values, which again, I'm not against, but who is going to be the moral authority that will guide these things? And it's going to be the Pope. We looked at this over and over again. Now, the question is, we talked about this question, very million-dollar question here, has the original beast, which we have identified, has that beast boasted or discussed its mark of authority to change the times and laws? Has it basically testified against itself? And, of course, the answer is yes. This is from SabbathTruth.com. A couple good quotes for you. There's a lot on here, but I'm just picking a few. Have you... Any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals or precept? This is from Reverend Stephen Keenan, A Doctrinal Catechism, New York, 1857, page 174. These are all documented. Had she, the Catholic Church, not such power, she could not have done that in in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. They admit it, and I talked about this in my Sabbath episode. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church translated the solemnity of, from Saturday to Sunday. Reverend Peter Gurman, The Convert's Catechism, of Catholic Doctrine, page 50. I looked at all this stuff. It's all documented. The Catholic Universe Bulletin, August 14, 1942. The Catholic Church changed the observance of Sabbath to Sunday by the right of the divine infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. Jesus did not give an institution his authority. He's ruling from heaven. The Protestant claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. True. You see, the harlot speaks the truth in some situations. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant, of course. I mean, in some sense, Seventh-day Adventists have some things that they are very wrong on, and we're going to look at that at the end of the series. But there's a lot of quotes in here. Um, you know, I mean, reason and sense demand the acceptance of our one of these. Reason and sense demand the ac- acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives, either Protestantism and keeping of holy of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. That's John Cardinal Gibbons, The Catholic Mirror, 1893. There's so many. And the question is this, does changing the Sabbath, 
does that count as changing the law? And of course, the answer is yes. Has the Catholic Church changed the times and laws? It has. It fulfills that prophecy. It's changed also things like transubstantiation, believing in literal body and blood of Jesus, uh, infant baptism, worship of Mary, praying to the saints, prayers for the dead, feast days, liturgical calendar. We talked about that. I mean, it has its own feast days now. Instead of listening to God's calendar, which is supposed to point to Christ, everything points to Christ. Time is structured around God. Everything points to God. The feast days, what do they do? They point to the church. It's the system that has made the sanctuary desolate. We talked about all these things like the Gregorian calendar, Constantine in the seven-day week. You know, modern-day calendar starts with death instead of life. I mean, all this fulfills these prophecies more than any organization in history. And of course, the Catholic Church has bragged about the uh, transferring of Saturday to Sunday as the day of worship. Now, look, you can worship God on any day of the week, but it has bragged about this as the mark of her authority. You can look this up. I'll put a little quote on the screen because I don't think I read it exactly, but there's a lot. I mean, some of these sites probably have it. It's the mark of her authority, of her ecclesiastical authority. Well, who gave you that authority to change God's laws? The answer is nobody, because Jesus said not a jot or a tittle will change from the law until all things are fulfilled. So are things has everything been fulfilled? No. So why would you change the law? You don't have that authority. Only God does, and God says he's not going to change his law, because his law is an immutable part of his character. So, conclusion. Does false worship qualify as a potential for the mark of the beast? with this whole Sabbath thing and in the day of rest, will it be a factor in the future? And the answer is yes, because it has been a factor in the past. We see this in history, and we'll look at it in just a second with history of the Sunday laws. But why? The question is why? Because again, the world is moving to a Christian nationalist system. The mark of Catholicism is Sunday worship and obedience to the church and to the system by resting on Sunday. If you rest on Sunday, I hope you get this more than anything else I've said today. If you rest on Sunday as acknowledging that Sunday is the day of rest, you are acknowledging the Catholic Church as the creator because that is a creation of the Catholic Church. You're also acknowledging the Catholic system as the redeemer, as the one who will provide for you because that's what it's moving towards. God provides for you on this. Of course, God provides for you every day. But the point is, when you acknowledge the seventh day as God requested it to be acknowledged, you're stopping from work because you trust that God will provide for you. If this becomes a situation where this becomes the mark of obedience, and the cost, if you don't obey, is that you basically are kicked out of society, then what does that say? That means the people who are trusting in the beast and the system and obeying and worshiping on Sunday and resting on Sunday, they're trusting in the beast to redeem them in the sense that, okay, I'm going to be redeemed or be saved. Or I'm going to have eternal life or I'm going to be provided for by the beast. I'm not going to listen to what God says. Do you see how this is all related? It's just Satan's way of making a counterfeit 
system where he is God, he is obeyed as the creator and the redeemer. In the occult, the people in the occult all believe this, Lucifer is the savior. He's the light bringer. It's, I'm not making this stuff up, man. This has all been documented very much in the previous episodes. But look, there's a history of Sunday laws. So again, I'm not pulling this out of my hat. There has been a history of Sunday laws, and we're going to look into it. The Sabbath Sentinel, Sabbath History by Kelly MacDonald. In the 4th and 5th centuries, a series of Sunday laws were enacted in the Roman Empire. Whether that was the intent of these laws or not is unknown, but we can know that these laws were used by the Roman Church to point people away from the true Sabbath. As we have reviewed in previous articles, the first national Sunday law in history was passed by Constantine in 321 AD. Keep in mind that this law did not apply universally to all people in the Roman Empire. Farmers were exempted from it. After researching a little further, we find that Constantine relaxed this Sunday law for special Roman market days. The second detail about this special law is that it had no connection to Jesus Christ, Christianity, or the Holy Bible. Constantine was a sun worshiper, and his law to honor the sun was simply behavior consistent to this belief system. To learn more about 321-day decree, you can click here. We've talked about this. I've had an extensive episode on the Sabbath, and you can check out One important development that did occur during the reign of Constantine is the interweaving of the Roman Empire and the Roman Church, which we also refer to as the Roman Catholic Church. Constantine used the Roman Church to bring more subjects into obedience to the state. He de facto made the Roman Church an institution of the state. He and other Roman emperors codified Roman Church practices into Roman law. They even went so far as to regulate some practices, which we have some examples below. I talked about this with Justinian, who basically eventually officiated the Pope into existence. In 326 AD, he passed a law that granted the Roman Church special privileges. All other Christian groups were not allowed these privileges and were bound to public service. He regulated the number of clergy in Christianity, and secular judges were given were even required to enforce the decisions of Christian bishops. Pay attention to this, because it's going to come back, especially in the United States. We're going to come back to this. It sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. In 379 AD, Theodosius became the Eastern Roman Emperor. After hearing the perspectives of different Christian groups, he sided with the Roman Church. All houses of prayer were taken away from other Christian groups and given over to them. So they confiscated everything and became a nationalized religion. In 380 AD, he passed a law enforcing that all peoples under his rule follow the Roman Catholic religion. In 386, Theodosius instituted a Sunday law which was different than those enacted by Constantine. He was the first emperor to implement a Sunday law and attach Christian meaning to it. Theodosius' relationship with the Roman Church would pave the way for celebrations of the Roman Church, including Sunday, to be enshrined as established by Roman law. From 386 to 469, there were seven laws enacted that specifically regulated some aspect of Sunday rest or worship. And they list all the different laws by the various emperors, During these years of the later Roman Empire, Sunday was cemented as the day of rest in the Roman Empire. This affirmed the position of the Roman Church as the preferred religion of the empire. It diverted people away from the true Sabbath, which is Friday sun... Okay, this is wrong. It's not Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. I talk about this. See, look, such great information, but then, you know, they give you this untruth. The Bible has always testify that the day starts at sunrise, not sunset. This is a Babylonian inversion. It's not true. Go look at the episode or listen to it 
on the Sabbath. But again, you know, good information, and then they throw you a doozy. Nevertheless, the laws passed from 364 to 69 would have a significant impact on the Eastern Empire and the other parts of Europe for centuries to come, in some ways down to our present time, which is true. It is very true. And ultimately, if you know your history, these things have been going on for the last 1,500 years as this beast system has slowly spread its tentacles throughout society. And now it's coming back. But let's look at a little more history. This is from a book called History of the Church from the Earliest Ages to the Reformation, Volume 1. Okay, I'll have to read this actually by maximizing it because some of these formatting, sorry guys, I have to read this out loud, but the Pope in a council held at Tours in 1163 published a decree to this effect. Whereas a damnable heresy for some time lifted its head in the parts about Toulouse and has already spread in its infections through Gascony. Now he's talking about the Sabbatarians, people who were worshiping on the Sabbath and other provinces, concealing itself like a serpent within our own folds. So the Pope is calling these genuine Christians a serpent. As soon as his followers shall have been discovered, let no man afford them a refuge on his estates, neither let there be any communication with them in buying or selling. So that by, so that being depri- deprived of the solace of human conversion or conversations, they may be compelled to return from error to wisdom. The same pontiff in the Third Lateran Council held in 1179 published other edicts against the heretics, variously named Cathari, Paterini, Publicani, etc., pursuing them with anathemas, refusal of Christian sepulture, and other spiritual chastisements. So, look, this has been going on. This is in the 1100s. Okay, this is 1100s. Now, let's look at another one. This is a National Sunday Law. This is arguments of Alonzo T. Jones before the U.S. Senate Committee in 1888. So we saw a very early church. We saw around the middle. And now this is recently, like 200 years ago. Not Yeah, not even. A little bit less than that. 150 years ago. This was a bill that was presented by a man to make a national Sunday law in the United States. A bill to secure the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as the day of rest. Wait a minute, the day of rest is Saturday, it's not the first day of the week. And to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. So not only do you have to rest, but we are going to promote its observance as that's the day that you worship. Be it enacted by the Senate House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled that no person or corporation or the agent, servant, or employee of any person or corporation shall perform or authorize to be performed any secular work, labor, or business to the disturbance of others, works of necessity, mercy, and humanity accepted. Nor shall any person engage in any play, game, or amusement or recreation to the disturbance of others on the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day. At least they acknowledge that Sunday is the first day. See, most calendars today will show the weekend, which is Saturday and Sunday. But wait a minute, the weekend should be Friday and Saturday, would it not? Or during any part thereof, in any territory distinct vessel or place subject to exclusive jurisdiction of the United States, nor shall it be lawful for any person or corporation to receive pay for labor or service performed or rendered in violation of this action. So if this was a law today... What would the punishment be, I wonder? Hmm. Would you be ostracized from the social credit system? And especially now that everything is trackable, if this law came back into 
society and you lived in a Christian nationalist society. Look, it sounds crazy. History repeats itself. Book of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, it's it's crazy, but this is the truth. This is the truth that history testifies to. And again, you have other things like this. Pope Francis calls for a new system of global government to tackle climate change. I've talked about this in the past, but I'll talk a little bit about it today. The Pope has been hailed for making a profoundly important intervention to the debate on global warming after making clear that the climate change is real, dangerous, and man-made. As he called for a new system of global government to tackle this unprecedented worldwide threat. Oh my gosh, of course it's this problem-reaction-solution. And who is it being authored by? Well, you have the example right here, the answer, the Pope. He knows the dialectics. The, the problem is climate change. What's the solution? A worldwide system. Well, gosh, Pope, none of us countries can agree, so maybe you should be in charge of this system. Do you see where this is going? There's a Green Sunday movement with all this climate activism that's pushing for a day of rest. A Green Sunday secular day of rest. We need to rest for the environment. Of course, that aligns with the Pope's Laudato Si and his whole view on climate change, which, of course, it ties it all back into this. It's all related. COP27, when they smash the Ten Climate Commandments, you know, it's all about, oh, we got to restore the climate, so we need a day of rest to cut emissions. What day is that going to be? Well, let's do Sunday, because, you know, that's a good day. Well, why, why Sunday? Why not another day? Isn't that interesting how that works? Because... That honors the beast. And pretty soon it's going to be part of culture. And it's going to be just this accepted thing that Sunday is the day of rest. That's tradition. And we obey and we are paying homage to the beast because that's the one who provides for us. Crazy stuff. Sunday bank laws. Banks are already closed on Sundays. Again, I talked about the weekend. The weekend is really Friday and Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day of the sun. So... Why are you resting on the day of the sun and acknowledging and aligning with Rome? That's the question. If you're a Protestant or if you non-denominational, whatever, why are you aligning with Rome? You can worship God on any day of the week, but Sunday is not the day of rest. It's Saturday. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. At least it's been that way for almost 2,000 years. And God didn't say what day. He said the number of the day. He said the seventh day of the week. All Protestants worship on Sunday. That's going to be a point that the uni- that the universal religion that's coming will unite around. We've talked about other points like Mary, the Holy Spirit, and Pentecostalism, char- the Catholic charismatic movement, look in the counterfeit spirit. That episode talks about that. It's all these things that have nothing to do with Jesus that are u- being used to unify the world into a common culture. Sunday is one of them, and that's why I believe it'll play its role um, with the mark of the beast. But let's look at a very interesting letter from John Paul II, who was, oh my gosh, everybody loved John Paul. This is the apostolic letter, Motu Proprio Ad Tuendam Fidem, by which certain norms are inserted into the code of canon law. So this is a very official document by Pope John Paul II, and let's see what he says in Canon 1436. Whoever denies a truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith, or who calls into doubt, or who totally repudiates the Christian faith, and of course you know what he means by Christian here, he means Catholic, which is not Christian, 
and does not retract after being legitimately warned, is to be punished as a heretic. This is by Pope John Paul II. Or an apostate with a major excommunication. A cleric, moreover, can be punished with other penalties, not excluding deposition. So what does this say? Again, reading the dragon's language, you have to just read between the lines because he talks so eloquently and just to, just to distract you with these beautiful sounding words. Remember, angel, the, devil's, the devil appears as an angel of light. He's absolute darkness and evil clothed in brilliant light. So the way he talks is the same way. What this says is, if you don't obey what I say, I will kill you. I will destroy you. If you do not submit to my power, if you do not believe what this authority lays down, then you will be punished as a heretic. How did heretics get punished throughout the last 1,500 years of the Catholic Church? And the answer is death. What does the Bible say for the mark of the beast that people will be? persecuted and killed, and and you won't be able to buy and sell. So this is nothing new, nothing new. And it's, again, I'm not talking out of my hat here or my head. This has been testified to of history. The misleading metaphor, separation of church and state. This is a good one. The words separation of church and state are not found in the Constitution, Bill of Rights, or any other founding document. Yet most Americans today are most familiar with the phrase more familiar with this phrase than they are with the First Amendment. Where did this phrase come from? That's an interesting question. Let's take a look. We talked about how there's no separation of church and state in the United States and how it's all dialectic. It originally came from a previously obscure letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. This is in 1802. The Baptists were concerned that Jefferson, an Episcopalian, would select his denomination of Christianity as the state-sponsored denomination in America. They were concerned that Baptists might be persecuted by the federal government just as they had been persecuted by the Church of England. After all, many of the founders had come to America to escape persecution of their religious denomination by the Church of England, which is also a church-state union. All these things are part of the original beast system. Fear of the government persecution is what spurned the Danbury Baptist to write the president of Je- to to write President Jefferson. They were concerned that the Church of England was about to become the Church of America. In his letter to reply to the Baptist, Jefferson assures the Baptists that they have no need to fear the government getting involved in their religious matters, because quote I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That's the late Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist had the most succinct and to-the-point description of the so-called separation of church and state. This is from a Supreme Court justice. He referred to it as a misleading metaphor. Very interesting. But the greatest injury of the wall notion is its mischievous diversion of judges from the actual intentions of the drafters of the Bill of Rights. The wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history, a metaphor which has been proved useless as a guide to judging. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. That's an interesting statement. What was originally intended to prevent Congress from interfering with religious institutions or exercises has only recently been misinterpreted as meaning that Congress must restrict religious exercises. As we have been 
as we have seen, nothing could be further from the original intent of the founders. Understanding the, orig- the origin of this phrase can help us communicate about our actual First Amendment rights more effectively. So what is the point here? If you can read between the lines. The point is this. The point is that the Founding Fathers never intended for the country to restrict religion. They wanted separation, but again, if you know dialectics, if you understand where all these things are tying into and how they relate to Mystery Babylon and the French Revolution, we talked about that in the French Revolution episode, how there's this dialectic between Christian nationalism and secularism and the Illuminati and all these secret societies. Again, it's left first right. Left first right began right around the time that America was established as a nation. And this idea of separation between church and state has been oscillating back and forth. With the left, it oscillates more towards communism and atheism, where they want to abolish religion. What does that make the right do? That makes the right do to push more for integration of church and state. Because what's the point? The point is to bring this country to a Christian nationalist system. This is where it's going to begin. We're in the false prophet. If you live in the United States, this is the second beast that will export its version of Christian nationalism, which honors the first beast. Look at the White House and look at the Sistine Chapel. They're practically the same thing. Washington, D.C. has an obelisk. Vatican has an obelisk. The image of the beast has been being has been built or in the process of being built for hundreds of years. And it's nearing completion. All it needs is a charismatic leader, possibly like Trump, to come back and take the torch and run towards the light, the false light of Lucifer. And history will repeat itself because the Bible says it will. The Bible's very clear on these things. So separation of church and state is not designed to separate church and state. It's just designed to to make sure the state doesn't interfere with religion. Read another way, let the beast do what it needs to do in culture without interfering with it. And ultimately, that's what's happening today. We looked at that in the Image of the Beast episode. This is a transcript from an interview with a Jesuit, Joseph Fessio, Society of Jesus. And it's from a little while ago. It's from 2005. But it's a very telling quote. It's an interview <clears throat> with him and a bunch of people, I believe, on NBC News. And he goes, Tim, Jesus told us that he who hears you hears me. The glory of the Catholic Church, which we accept humbly, is that God has revealed his truth to us through human instruments. And Jesus appointed Apostle Peter at their head to maintain that truth and its integrity. And so, yes, the Catholic Church, when it speaks authoritatively, is giving us the truth of Christ. And those who rebel against the church's authentic teaching are rebelling against God. Didn't Jesus predict, and of course he was talking to the apostles, But his words are prophetic, too. Jesus said that there will come a day when people will kill you doing, thinking that they're doing a service to God. If there is a false Christ or a false millennial reign, and you are one of the few that sees this truth and object to this system, and you're the enemies that are being under his feet that needs to be conquered because you're rebelling to God, you are a heretic, then do you see what's going on? You see how all this adds up? The people who are going to reject the mark will be outcast and killed, and people will think that they're doing God a service because they're getting rid of the final people who are standing in the way of the light. That's crazy. It's crazy. If you have followed me so far, 
you know that this is not a conspiracy theory. And again, that's from John 16 too, that people will come a day when people will kill you thinking that they're doing service to God. Imagine, again, if there's a false Christ on the earth and you know that that's a false Christ, but the most of the world thinks that Jesus has come and you're saying, and you're trying to say, no, 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 that's that's not the truth. Like, wake up. Imagine, remember when this whole virus thing gripped the earth and you were one of the people, hopefully, if not, at least some point, you know, maybe you were awake and you were trying to fight against your own family or people that you knew to wake them up and how committed they were to the illusion. That was nothing compared to what it's going to be in the future. Imagine that. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Again, remember from Exodus uh, 31, 13, the Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign between God and his people. What is a counterfeit sign? It's a counterfeit day of worship and rest. So Satan will want to create that because, again, he wants to be the creator and redeemer, the one who changes the law, the one who brings about things, and he'll have his own his own false age because, again, the Bible predicts it. God will let him do that so that people will see what it means to obey Satan, so that the lie from the Garden of Eden will be fulfilled, so that mankind can see forever what the cost of obeying the devil is, and it will be fulfilled. So all of this is pointing to a counterfeit system, a counterfeit millennial reign, a counterfeit golden age, a counterfeit day of worship, it's all going to tie into to this mark of the beast thing. But again, who knows how exactly it's going to play out? It's about obedience. That's the thing to take away from today. It is about obedience. We talked about how the abomination of desolation is a type for the future. The sanctuary was, you know, the, the sanctuary in the wilderness the Jews had was a, was a physical type for the plan of salvation. There's so many things in there that talk about salvation. And again, it's pointing to a spiritual truth. The physical before the spiritual. We know that the abomination of desolation was fulfilled by the Catholic Church. They established this Catholic system that made the sanctuary, which is the plan of salvation, the gospel, desolate, meaning nobody's going through the door. They're they're being distracted and forced into this false system. That's the abomination of desolation. We talked about that. Now, we also know that if that's the case, again, physical and spiritual, when Jesus warned in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 about Jerusalem being surrounded, of course, he was warning about the actual thing that happened when the temple was destroyed. Okay, first, what happened was they, they surrounded Jerusalem, but then they left. Then they came back and destroyed it. So it was kind of like a warning sign. It was God's way of saying, look, when you see this, get out. I'm giving you a window of opportunity to escape. And those who didn't, they were destroyed and crucified and brutally tortured. So ultimately, how does that apply to us? Well, the first one was a physical situation around Jerusalem. The second one will be a spiritual situation, possibly, in the sense that you will have an attempt. Again, that's why we have to watch the right things, not watch Israel. You have to watch things like this Green Sunday movement. Sunday legislation, how culture is becoming more and more Christian nationalist and Catholicized. That's what things to watch. And there will be probably a time that's going to be a dead giveaway about what's happening. And that's the time to really get out of the cities. Now, however that's going to work, I don't know. I trust God to guide me. And I hope that you trust God to guide you as well. 
rather than obsessing over how to plan that out. But ultimately, the mark of Catholicism is Sunday worship. And when they start bringing that into legislation, as we clearly see throughout history, throughout the last 1,500 years and more, that has happened over and over again. So to be ignorant of that and to think, oh, this is just a conspiracy theory that's not going to happen, you are very, very ignorant of what's going on. And that's just most people, unfortunately, because they're not talking about these things. Keep your eyes peeled. Keep your eyes peeled. Remember the Didact. We talked about this in one of the first couple episodes. People, second century Christians, believe that there would be a false Christ. So if there's a false Christ and a false fulfilling of this fleshly dispensationalist uh, prophecy with the third physical temple in Jerusalem, and they're going to stage some guy to go in there and proclaim himself to be God, and then maybe Satan will appear as Jesus and destroy this guy, and people think, oh my gosh, the, the, we've made it, we're made it, we were in the millennial reign. Can you believe that? I mean, that's that's possible. That's very possible. If that happens, man, will people be deceived. And again, I hope that you're not going to be one of them. I hope you've stuck around through this series, through all these things that I'm talking about, because they are very detail-oriented. There's a lot to talk about, but there's not many people talking about them. That's the unfortunate thing. Don't forget that there is a an electing purpose, a sovereign electing purpose that God has for his people. If God has chosen to save you and he's revealed himself to you and you have a relationship with God, he's not going to let you get deceived. One way or another, he's going to seal you. That's what the 144,000 tells us. Now, here's another thing to think about why this relates to the Sabbath. Again, there's the comparison of the seal of God and the mark of the beast. That We looked at that. But a seal in ancient times, when there was a seal, like a stamp on something, it had three identifying things. It had the name, it had the title, and it had the territory of the particular king. The Sabbath has all three. It has the name, Yahweh, the Lord. What's his title? Creator and Redeemer. And his territory is what? Heaven and earth. So all the times you read about the Sabbath, when the Sabbath is being connected to the author, or I should say the authority behind the law, it gives you the name, the title, and the territory. And that, in a sense, could be a seal, a spiritual seal, that may relate to this end times thing. Now, again, I'm not being dogmatic about it. I'm not being legalistic about it. But there's a lot of interesting parallels. The Sabbath is also what ties the Ten Commandments to God. Because anybody especially you look at the United States and how people who founded the United States were naturalists. They were just secret society members that basically thought you could save yourself. And, you know, there's natural law. Of course, killing is wrong because it's natural law. Well, look, anybody can come up with the idea that, you know, killing is wrong because that's natural law. We all have that on our conscience. So who do you obey? Why should you obey the Ten Commandments as... Ten Commandments from who? From God, because it is tied to his authority as the creator, as the redeemer. Anyone can make such laws. The government, Most governments tell you that killing is wrong, that you know stealing is wrong. All these things are punished by governments because they're based off the Ten Commandments. But the reason you follow the law is not because the government tells you. It's because God is the creator and the redeemer and has told you what is wrong and what is right. The Sabbath 
being unique to the Ten Commandments. See, again, the, the, the government doesn't tell you when to rest. It just tells you, well, this is wrong, killing is wrong, stealing is wrong, such and such. But what identifies the Ten Commandments as proceeding from God himself is the Sabbath. It is unique to God that he would rest and he would command a day of rest when you could honor him as the creator and the provider because that authenticates him as the source of the law. If Satan is trying to counterfeit this reality and become a you know a counterfeit Christ or a counterfeit millennial reign or a counterfeit day of rest so that you pay allegiance to him as the creator of this false utopia and the one that will save you with worldly means then it's very it makes a lot of sense that this is what's going to play into the mark of the beast again I don't know exactly how it's going to work but ultimately it is all very possible and if you have seen other things we've talked about like the image of the beast and all these episodes where we're looking at the Christianizing of culture, which again, sounds maybe good, but it's not. The Bible never advocates being one with the world. It never advocates being political. It is a lifestyle. It's a way. It's a relationship. It's not an institution. But Revelation fourteen twelve says those who keep the testimony and the commandments of Jesus, those are the ones who are sealed and who prevail. Now, does that mean being a legalist about it? No. But the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. It is part of of recognizing God's authority in your life. He's the one you rest according to, not according to the Catholic Church. Now, a lot of people don't know this, so they're deceived, and that's why I trust God's providence and sovereign will in all things, because ultimately, those who he wants to save, he will save. But again, nobody's talking about this stuff. I'll leave you with one more thing about the number 666 and the number of his name. There's a lot of, we talked about this in the Mystery Babylon episode, but there's a lot of uh, numbers, or I should say a lot of things that add up to 666 that relate to the Pope. And again, I'm going to preface this with just a really quick comment that do not get lost in gematria. Gematria, numerology, all these things with secret knowledge, it's, it's a snare. However... It is interesting that things like, if we look on this page here, this says the the number of the beast, 666. You have the vicar of the Son of God, which is was a title for the Pope, Vicarius Fili Dei. It all adds up to 666 in Latin. Captain of the clergy, 666. Vicar of the court, Ludovicus. These are all Latin titles that were used by the Pope. 666. Now remember, even in the 16th century, he used the title called Our Lord God the Pope. They called him that. So... This is all documented. He's the one who stepped into the temple, which is the body of Christ, proclaimed himself to be God. This is all history. Holy light of God, which is another title for the Pope, 666. Now in Greek, you also have, again, remember some of those Greek letters are used as numbers. And you have the Latin speaking man, i latinos, the Latin speaking man, that's 666. The Latin kingdom, the Italian church, apostates, tradition, 666. So again, you know, I I just look at all this as being consistent with everything else that the Bible says. I don't look at this as a primary source of evidence uh, by any means, because again, numerology is a snare. I don't recommend like getting into gematria and secret numbers. This is what mysticism does. 
The Bible doesn't call you to doing these little secret searches, but nevertheless, it's an interesting thing. The man of sin, the man where where sin is maximized. Well, if you think about it, the Pope is the man of sin as an institution. He is leading people into the maximal amount of sin by enforcing these blasphemous doctrines, by leading them, by blocking them from a relationship with Jesus and inserting himself as the one they need to look to for spiritual guidance. The Holy Father, are you kidding me? Christ said, call no man on earth your father, for you have one father in heaven. And of course, the father is also a title given to Christ as well. Not that he is the father, but everlasting father is one of the titles given to him, wonderful counselor. So these things are appropriated from Christ to the Pope. So this is very, you know, it's if you have eyes to see, you see who the real Antichrist on the earth is, the Antichrist system. And of course, that is a personal representative. So is everything I've talked about possible? Absolutely. Rome is coming back and it's going to demand worship just like it did for thousand for 1,500 years. Who knows how it's going to be enforced? Who knows how exactly it's going to happen? But these things are very real. The climate change thing is real. The Christianization of the U.S. is very real. The Christian nationalization, the union of church and state, it's, it's all moving in that direction. Protestants are moving back with the Catholic Church. Islam is being integrated. All the world's religions are begging for world peace. Everybody wants world peace. The Pope is at the center of all of these things. All of these things. If you follow the right news, if you're looking at Israel and what Hamas is doing and they launched another set of rockets in Israel and blah, 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 you are being fooled and distracted. Of course, there will probably something happen in Israel. I'm sure there will because they've used Israel and they're using Israel now with this whole third temple thing to fulfill their false prophecy so that when the golden age is ushered in, you believe that Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. <laughs> But remember, Jesus is going to come like in the days of Noah, when people are eating and drinking and giving in marriage, meaning they're in that false golden age already. They've taken the mark. So that's not the end. It's going to be near the end, but Jesus is going to come when that has been fulfilled. So we have to have very high discernment because the real deception is on the horizon. Go watch my previous episode titled, the King of the North and the, the Dark to Light Deception. It's a long one, but it's going to open your eyes on all of these dialectics. Please be aware, have discernment, and remember that we have assurance of salvation through the gospel. Mark of the Beast is scary, for sure, but it is a counterfeit election that the devil is trying to do to basically have his own people. He's going to have his own false golden age, his own redemption, which again is all damnation, but he wants to counterfeit God, and that, and God will let him do it so that people see, that the elect see, what that could have been for them if God had not saved them. That's really the purpose of evil, is to teach uh, the elect of God's mercy. Because if God hadn't opened your eyes, you would have been one of those people. You wouldn't even known that you needed a Savior. You wouldn't even known that you were being deceived. And of course, it will reveal also God's justice, and that's very important. So we talked about these things in a lot of different episodes, but look, once the mark is implemented, there's not too much time to go. So that's that should be optimistic news for us, in the sense that we should look forward to this in some sense, 
because once the mark is implemented, and you'll know, it'll be obvious, if you're looking for the right things, if you're paying attention to the things I've been saying, and the Bible, it's not me saying it, it's it's I've, that I've been talking about this series, but really it's the Bible saying and history saying. If you're paying attention to those things, you will have eyes to see. And when that happens, the time for the return of Christ is near. We know that from, again, the timing of the various things, that when the Son of Man returns, it will be like the days of Noah. Why are people celebrating and eating and drinking and giving in marriage? Because they took the mark of the beast. So the days are cut short. We know that from Matthew 24, for the sake of the elect, so that there are still some people left alive, because otherwise everybody would be killed. And so that means that there is some sense of urgency once the mark of the beast is implemented. Hallelujah, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, let's do this. So a lot of exciting things to look forward to in the future if we're still alive. But nonetheless, I hope this has been a blessing to you. I hope it's opened your eyes. I know this is a long episode. Some of these have been very long, but I hope they've been great resources for you. Please stay sharp. Stay close to your Bible. Look at the real Antichrist power on the earth when you study these things so that you can see rightly and and interpret world events rightly. Otherwise, you will be misguided because everything is moving into that direction. And the media and even Christians who are well-meaning, who have channels who talk about these things, most of them are deceived. I hate to say it. They're deceived because they've bought into dispensationalism and futurism. But futurism was created by the Antichrist power on the earth to take attention off of itself. So without further ado, I hope you have a great rest of your day. I hope this has been edifying to you. And stay tuned. Next time we'll talk a little bit more about some other things. But ultimately, Mark of the Beast, look, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual reality. That's the thing to get out of today's episode. And don't obsess over physical things like chips and jabs. Of course, obviously use discernment with things like that. But, you know, trust in the Lord and he'll guide you to the right way. We'll see you next time.